0: Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s Football Podcast. The podcast is more 90s than Kevin McAllister battling the wet bandits at Christmas. I bloody love Home Alone. And Home Alone too. Lost in New York. Great films. My name's Ash Rose, your host and guide on this, the original 1990s Football Podcast. And it's a ho, ho, bloody ho, because it's nearly Christmas. Yes, we are five days. Yes, what's the date today? 20th, I'm recording this on five days from christmas and anyone who follows me on my personal account at UK on twitter or instagram will know i'm a bit of a christmas fiend yes it is my favorite time of year the most wonderful time of the year that wasn't quite in tune but you know what i mean yes christmas i'm a i love christmas i absolutely love every single thing about it i've got stupid amount of jumpers um every, decorations i mean if my wife would let me my house would look like something from national lampoon's christmas vacation my favorite christmas film but it's classy but there's still a lot of christmas crap in my house at the moment which my one-year-old is loving as well she seems to be pulling them all off the tree and are finding cards in the washing machine and things like that but yeah all very Christmassy, and why not because it's the perfect time of year and the perfect time for us to do a Christmas-themed podcast version of AK90s. More on that to come in a second. Uh, thank you to everyone who downloaded last episode, which we went a little bit, I want to say off-piste. We can never really go off-piste on here because it's all about 1990s football. But we delved into the world of social media uh, and met the guys behind 90s football and crap 90s football and the success that got, those guys have had on those accounts. really interesting to hear not only how and why they came up with of those concepts but where it's led them and the funny kind of stories they had behind each so thank you to paddy and to james james richardson what a 90s name as well brilliant i'm trying to get the actual james richardson on the show as well i'll keep you posted on that but yeah thanks to those guys once again it was a really good show i hope they heard of good christmas as well i'm sure they will i'm sure you've been enjoying uh crap 90s football's uh countdown of their bad event calendar very good see what he did there uh, loads of bad football more people have enjoying that than our '90s football calendar pictures. Not really love on the social media for them. Maybe we'll think rethink our. Uh Output at Christmas next year because I don't think you've many of people have kind of maybe got bored of what we do at Christmas on the Twitter feed. So I'm going to look at a lot of these social media outputs in 2018 because if anything, Paddy and James have taught me that there is an audience out there on social media that loves 90s football and we want to get involved with them, get them on the show, get them involved in the show and get them listening to the show like you guys. So I'm going to be more kind of, I don't know what the word is actually, more savvy i suppose when it comes to social media in 2018 um on today's show though yes it's a christmas theme and i have to give credit to sid lambert who is one of our guests today um who came up with the idea because um sid's a big friend of the show hopefully you've all bought his book cashing in ahead of christmas i think there's still time to nab it on a next day delivery on Amazon, blah, blah, blah. It's a fantastic read. Um, We were trying to work out a Christmas theme for me, him, and Joel Young, who's also on the show, for a friend of the show, furniture, the grandfather, clock, you know, the usual spiel. And he came up with this idea. So what we're doing on today's show, we've each chosen five Christmas wishes. As it's Christmas, we're doing our Christmas wishes, but they all stem from something to do with 90s football. But yeah. Interesting. So that should be a lot of fun. So stay tuned for that. Uh, I got actually probably the best Christmas present that I'm probably going to get, not just this year, ever, literally through my door yesterday. Um, You must know by now I've gone on about him just a little bit here on this show. Waxed lyrical, as they say, the brilliant, brilliant Hallie Inc., who normally... He's known for doing those brilliant uh, kit illustrations. Uh, I've mentioned the QPR one and the Euro 96 one that I've got in my office, but he does a plethora of clubs and some great stuff on the tournaments as well. We did a competition for the World Cup USA 94 one on our Twitter feed. So, he's yeah, he's up there with those illustrations, but he also did a great uh, range with a Sabutio artist. And uh, he did a, I, I think you saw, I mentioned I did an Alexi Lalas one. That I bought literally, uh, he, he produced those and I bought them off the site. But then he did this other rare sort of com- I want, not competition, promotion is the word I'm looking for, uh, where you could choose which uh, Sabutio figure you'd like this guy to design for you. And you can probably guess when I went into this, which player I was, uh, was going to go for. And it came through the post yesterday. And I'm now proud to say I am the owner of the only well, I wouldn't say official, but the only QPR figure of Roy Wegley. Yes, of course, it was Roy. Who else would it have been? Um, yeah, so I don't know if you've seen it on my Twitter feed. Check it out at Ash UK. Um, I think I retweeted it as well from the uh, AK 90s, but basically, it's a little yellow figure uh, of Roy Wegley back in his uh, sort of 91 92. Uh, era of the QPR kit, the brooks on it and he's even got the flowing locks, the number 10 on the back, uh, it's brilliant yeah. So thanks you guys, thanks to Halley Inc and the designer who you can get on Twitter at Florent Holland um, El Pibo del Oro is his actual name but at Florent Holland um, follow those on Twitter because he did a whole range in, a con- in conjunction with Halley Inc as a couple of Jurgen Klinsmann ones if you go into his Instagram feed actually he's got the whole lot including the Wegley one as well so check that out It got me thinking, actually, about Christmas gifts, Um, and I was just looking back and trying to think the first Christmas gift that I remember that was essentially football. Um, I remember I got my first QPR kit, which is the Brooks QPR kit, but I think that was for my birthday. I'm not sure that was... No, actually, thinking about it, no, I think this was the same Christmas I was about to think about the other gift. so this must have been Christmas 92, I remember. So it was probably the first proper one, because I can remember going down the stairs. My mum and dad had these weird traditions where they made us sit on the stairs to see if Santa had come and things like that. I'm sure all your families have some quirks on Christmas Day. Uh, but I got my first QPR kit. But the one thing I always remember, it was a football, which is you know not the most you know original gift to give a, a kid who was mad on football at the time. But it was a special Brian Robson. It was black, all completely black. I don't remember who made it because I've desperately tried to find it on the internet but I can't find it anywhere because I can't remember the actual make of the football um, but it had Brian Robson's signature on it uh, printed, not actually physically signed by Brian Robson the original was um, I think they did a range of Gaelinic as well probably Sunderco thinking about it actually now because I know they did a he did a promotion at the time of Gaelinic so maybe it was Sunderco but it's big black football um, and it was wrapped like a football and it just made me laugh because how else can you wrap one but it was so uh, what it was um, and whatever else I got that year all I remember is I got my kit on and it must have been what? December weather at the time, went straight in the garden, playing around with this black Brian Robson football in my QPR kit, it was like, whatever else does a, what was I at the time, nine ten year old need, uh, absolutely amazing, that was my first memory of a proper football gift at Christmas, I also remember getting a match of the day alarm clock as well, can't remember what Christmas this was, um, but I still own it, it still sits on the top of my uh, one of my uh, shelving units in my office. But at the time, it was my alarm to get me up for my paper round and school and everything. But it was the Match of the Day theme tune. So for a while, I bloody hated the Match of the Day theme tune because it was the sound of me getting up for the morning. Um, I've turned the actual alarm of it now. Um, it's in the book, actually. I think it's one of those unique kind of niche uh, products from uh, the 90s that I don't know many people own. But yeah, the Match of the Day alarm clock. It was definitely in the, uh, the Argos catalogue, for sure. Let us know, though, um, if you get anything... 90s related in your uh presents or your stocking fillers this year or indeed you've got some classic pictures of you at Christmas with some 90s gifts it'd be great to see um, as always the Twitter feed is at AK90s we are on Facebook um, but I don't really use that as much it's more on the Twitter, um, possibly Instagram in the future. Um, it's just a lot to then start <laughs> another account. So pretty much Twitter is the focus of Alive and Kicking for the moment, and as I said earlier in the show, are really gonna be a big focus in 2018. Um, which leads me to say, before we go into uh, the bulk of the meat of today's show, a big thank you and a big Merry, Merry Christmas to everyone who listens to Alive and Kicking. It is a, a labor of love for me. Um, I know they are particularly at the moment, some big big competition out there but thank you everyone who has downloaded and listened to the podcast in 2017 thank you to everyone who's commented on the podcast on Twitter or Facebook or wherever I have a medium who, who, whoever's booked the book as well if anyone has enjoyed uh, the book that spawned this podcast if you bought that for Christmas thank you thank you very much that's very kind of you slightly I mean it was written in 2013 but um, it's not our date because it's all 90s football but yes thank you to everyone who's been involved all the guests all the footballers on the phone it's been another great great year as I always say, I really want to do more with this in 2018. Uh, whether it be, uh, I want to get more shows more regularly. Hopefully we can do that. It's just, I always want to get the guests right. Um, I could do a show every week, but I want to make sure we mix it up and get all the correct guests. Um, so that, that will, will try to be with you on a more regular week-to-week basis in 2018. Um, we're going to do more one-on-ones. Definitely want to do that in 2018. Really enjoy the Alexi Lalas one so we'll try and do more one-on-ones maybe our james richardson might be a one-on-one i'll put it out there on the twitter and see what people think Um, and video content that is something i keep saying um, but we are kind of getting closer and closer to working out some sort of maybe youtube-esque type show whether it be literally on youtube or on our facebook page or even on some other form that we are going to try some video content for alive and kicking that's build the brand in 2018 even though it will be 28 years since the original decade that we are talking about but that's get to the last show of 2017 before all that first we're going all Christmassy, the most wonderful time of the year with joe young and sid lambert as well as today's guest i mentioned alexi lallas a moment ago this is a former teammate of his from usa 94 he played in england with sheffield wednesday derby west ham and then even a little spell at Nottingham that people don't remember, he's the first American to score in a cup final, the first American to play in the Premier League as well, my guest on today's show is John Harkes, very good interview with John, so sit back, time to get festive, yeah I said last time you get your eggnog or your snowball. Does anyone else drink Snowball? I, I always have Snowball at Christmas and it seems to be a dying art. Something my dad passed down to me when I was younger. And I always have it. I only have it at Christmas as well. But yeah, uh, is it lemonade and advocate? Something like that. It's bloody lovely though. So if you've got your Snowball, sit down, listen to Alive and Kick In for the final time in 2017 as we get very festive with our Christmas wishes. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Yes, it's the Alive and Kicking Christmas special, and I couldn't do it alone. I have my two, two of my favourite people, my own turtle doves, if you will, joining me for this Christmas special here on Alive and Kicking. Firstly, he is a social media mogul for everything in the TV world, and not only is he a Barra fan, not only is he the grandfather clock of AK90s, but his name fits perfectly into a Christmas song.
1: Joel, Joel. You know what? You're the first one to do it this year. Ah, uh, yeah. I thought you You're the first ever, one then. to do it
0: this year, yeah. <laughs> I really thought you might say ever. I thought I was going to be on something.
1: No, No, yeah, oh, no, no, no. Look on, oh, mate. That's been a staple since about 1979, that one. You don't
0: I'd live on that. I'd eat out of that every day if that if my name. Was no, people, the Christmas song.
1: people. You're the first one to sing it this year, so I, I'll have to. If I was wearing a hat, I would tip it to you. Thank you very
0: much. And joining him, I, I, we're like three wise men on this episode. He is author of the brilliant book. There's still time to get it. I think if you are on a sort of last minute next day delivery service on Amazon or whatever there. Prime thing is called. Cashing in is the book. Sid Lambert is the man. He he's his name doesn't fit into a Christmas song, but he has all of a sudden become the king of the Twitter quip. Mister Sid Lambert, how you doing?
2: I'm doing very well, mate. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. I like a bit of festive football.
0: Oh yeah, me too. But before we get to that, I mean, I mentioned that there. You this week on Twitter, you've become, you've almost gone viral with your hilarity.
2: Yeah, I've hit, a, I've hit a purple patch, really, in, in good tweets. I've, I've had some good videos out. I put one last night out about uh, Sir Bobby Robson. I saw that, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, that went mental. The Cantona one from the uh, Side tournament he was in for Sheffield Wednesday, that went a bit bonkers.
1: That was very <laughs> that... good.
2: I, I did laugh at that one. Thank you very much. Although know, I was actually quite pleased with the one I put out about Tommy Graveson this afternoon. That's a... Didn't anyone <laughs> see that? Has a storming picture that he found there. Oh, it's a great picture. Did you see it, Joel? No, I haven't seen it. It's, oh, uh... mate, it's Tommy Graverson with hair, and I said he looks like the third brother of Bros, who did uh, did time for burglary in his teens. He <laughs> <laughs> is the forgotten
0: member, isn't it? he? Uh, yeah. oh,
1: you wouldn't mess I with I should him. go and have a look. I like,
2: I like the pictures of, of Conte when he's losing
1: his hair, and then it miraculously reappeared again. <laughs> Conte always reminds
0: me of that little elf gremlin thing from the Labyrinth.
1: I'll give you that, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Was that nineties? Was *Labyrinth* Out in the nineties? That's more eighties. Eighties, yeah, yeah. eighties. that's okay. so, Yeah, yeah. It's
1: eighty-five, isn't it? Yeah, I, thought, I watched
0: it in the nineties. That's what I was like. Oh, I'll, I'll get away with that one. Anyway, talking—you
1: had, on, had it on video.
0: VHS, baby. You know it.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, well, talking to nineties, I said in the uh, the proper intro to the show, we've got a theme that Sid actually suggested. We're doing our Christmas wishes that are inspired by 90s football. Now, I have to be honest, I haven't done an awful lot of prep on this uh, just because, well, I've been off for most of December because I had so much holiday, so I haven't really been in front of a computer as much as normal, but I'm sure we'll, we'll model through, and I'm sure the guys have done well as, as well. I also asked them, before we get on to that, some memories about Christmas games around uh, Christmas time in the 90s. You guys, have you got any memories of moments or games that happened at Christmas time during the 1990s? Coming to you first, Joel. Uh,
1: it, well my first ever away game and i have talked about this before but my first ever away game was um everton away middlesbrough on boxing day i think it was 1995 and uh we got lost in liverpool we didn't know where we were going we didn't know how to get the ground we parked our car somewhere about 12 miles away from goodison i think um got to the ground eventually um Joe Parkinson crocked Janinho in the first three oh, minutes. that
0: game, right, yeah. Uh,
1: and then it was uh, the Andrei Kanchelskis versus Chris Morris show. Andrei Kanchelskis set up three and scored one. And that was my trip to Goodison Park on a freezing cold boxing day. And I think it was 1995, but we got battered 4-0. And Kanchelskis, who was a player that I always, always, always wanted to see come to Borough. Uh, and I think I think at one point when he decided to go to Everton, we ended up getting Nick Barnby, so it sort of the whole makeup of Middles Football Club were being completely different. But Kanchelskis was absolutely astronomical that day, and uh, you know if you're not familiar with uh, former Republic of Ireland international Chris Morris, <laughs> um, I mean, oh, dear, it just wasn't very good. <laughs> In fairness, Kanchelskis it, was a hell of a player. <laughs> it, yeah, but I mean. Morris one of the one of the favorite shouts of the riverside stadium in its first couple of years was Morris Morris Oh, Morris! Like that. So, you know, he wasn't really held in the highest esteem at the, at the club. You know, I think he was probably about third choice fullback as well. I think even behind Curtis Fleming some weeks, which if you know much about Curtis Fleming, lovely man, but not much of a bloody player. He's not,
0: he's not bad of a coach. Well, I say that with QPR 18th in the championship, but he's yeah, he's, hmm. he's well-liked down there. Apparently. Is that where he is now? He's yeah, he's on, yeah, he's on our oh, coaching I did, staff. Yeah, I yeah. did not know that. He's nice a, man.
1: He's a very, very well-liked, popular man.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'd spoke to him, and, spirit, but
1: just wasn't a good, just wasn't the best player yeah. in the world. But there you go.
0: I'm, I'm leaving these uh, defensive frailties as a coach to the fact that we've got like one fit defender. But um, by all accounts, he's uh, he's doing well down there. Apparently, uh, Sid, have you got any memories uh, of, of Christmas times in the nineties?
2: Yeah, mine's, mine's actually a New Year's Day fixture because mm-hmm. I, I sort of lumped it all in together. Oh and yeah, back, festive season back in 1995, 96. It was my last year at. Um, Secondary school, Uh, so I was just finishing my A-levels, and I couldn't afford to go and watch West Ham, so I spent that season paying four quid to go on the terraces at Gillingham, and it was Tony Pulis' first. He'd been sacked at Bristol Rovers, um, and then we gave him the job at Gillingham because nobody else wanted it. They were bottom of the league. Uh, penniless, but they got taken over by a chap called Paul Scali, who's still there today, mm-hmm. 20-some, some 20-something years later. And Poulis started a revolution, and he signed a chap called Leo Fortune West. Oh, well, there's a name, oh, from the past. There's yeah. name for the yeah. now championship manager legend. And up front with Leo was a chap you'll know very well, Ash. Um, a certain young, well, not so young, actually, Dennis Bailey. Oh, He dropped drop down to the bottom tier and Tony Poulis said he was a Premiership player playing in Division 3 at the time. And anyway, Leo and Dennis Bailey were just um, causing chaos. But the football was rotten. <laughs> Gillingham were known. They were known. So this was 1995. And I remember Helen Chamberlain on Soccer AM called Gillingham the Robo-Gills because he was absolutely rancid. Honestly, it was terrible With Tony
1: Pulis in charge, Sid. You do surprise me.
2: Yeah, I know. But these really were the roots of Tony Pulis. And anyway, we started going to more away games as the the momentum picked up. Gillingham were top of the league. They were actually uh, going neck and neck for promotion with uh, David Moyes Preston. And on New Year's Day, we went to Leighton Orient away, freezing, freezing cold. Um, stunk the place out, absolutely stunk it out. All we did was catch them offside and hoof the ball into the corner flags. And Leo Fortune West scored one of the greatest headers in association football history to win 1-0. And in the final minute, the bloke in front of me, whilst everyone was celebrating, um, it was an open terrace at Leighton Orient at Brisbane Road at the time. Barry Hearn hadn't redone the place up yet. And uh, as he was celebrating, a Bird... Crapped on his head, his bald paint, <laughs> right in front of me. So I'd seen the rancid, rotten sight of Tony Pulis' football get three points one again, and a bloke in front had a bird poo on his head, and it was just a, it was just a wonderful nineties football moment. Happy New Year to that bloke.
1: Which uh, <laughs> which which Manchester United player had that happen to him? Ashley them? Young. Reeves, Ashley Young, yeah. I knew it was somebody. In yeah, his
2: mouth. Guy. Oh, horrible! Yeah. Mm. <laughs> oh, crikey! Yeah. Oh. Is, a, is it the worst thing that's been in Ashley Young's mouth? I mean, we'd probably have yeah. to see some data on that, wouldn't we?
0: <laughs> that's for another podcast, and definitely not one in this decade. Um, right. I'll switch, quit moving swiftly. My memory, actually, there's kind of elements of both yours, actually, because my first ever QPR game was around Christmas time, December 28th, 1992, against Everton, like uh, you were saying, Joel. Uh, at Loftus Road, um, it's become kind of a Christmas tradition actually with my with my dad. Like we don't go to as many games as we used to now, especially us both living in the deep dark bits of Kent. But we always go around the Christmas period, and we're going um, this year as well. Millwall Way we're going this year, which is a nice one to Ooh. choose.
1: Joyous. Yes, with the in- I just I just avoided that last week. I nearly went and I went, nah, you know what, I'm not going to. Well, it I, alone.
0: I, my get out of jail is that my in-laws are Millwall, so we're all going together. So that's that's the reason. But yeah, the, my first ever game was around the same time. We played Everton, one of the most eventful games of football I can ever remember, because Andy Sinton scored a hat-trick. Um, They had two players sent off, one of them being the goalie, Neville Southall. So then Jason Kearton. Came On to replace him he was the Aussie number two at the time, uh, and then Paul Rideout got sent off late on. We were four new up, no, three new up at the time. Then Stuart Barlow came on, scored two goals, and then I was thinking, Oh God, we're going to draw with nine men, but we ended up winning four two. So, very eventful game. But I can't also talk about this period in QPR without mentioning the aforementioned Dennis Bailey because it was on New Year's Day 1992. Dennis Bailey put his name into QPR folklore with that hat trick at Old Trafford. 4-1, one of the greatest results in uh, QPR's history. So he didn't much look like a Premier League player in his heyday, let alone when he was at Gillingham's did. But that day he was, uh, I think, unplayable, Alex Ferguson called him, and uh, one of the most memorable games of I can ever remember as a QPR fan. So yeah, those are my Christmas sort of memories uh, of, of from the 90s and football games. But what we're switching to now... We've each chosen five wishes. Now, these Christmas wishes are all 90s football-based. i use one an example, which I don't think these guys would have chosen. It's one Sid uh, suggested as well, that we wish they'd bring back Dream Team. Because, obviously, we talk a lot about it on here, and we've done a whole show on it. So I don't need to go into detail why, because we said it on that. But that is, that's an example. So we're taking 90 elements, put them in a Christmas wish, and seeing what we come up with. So we're going to start with Sid, because it was his kind of idea and, and theme that he came up with. So, Sid, what's your first wish, from the nineties.
2: Well, it was the first thing I thought of. To be honest, it was. I'd love to spend what, especially when you think the World Cup's coming up. One more summer with Des Lynham.
0: Ah, oh, my <laughs> summer with Des.
2: Oh, I mean, because all I remember really, um, when you think about the excitement of a, a big tournament coming up, and obviously it was the you were going to get to see all these fantastic players. You were going to do your sticker book. You know, there was all the. Um, the fun and games over who was going to get selected and who was in the draw and everything. But there was nothing quite like sitting down for that first BBC game and Des Lynham welcoming you to, you know, to the World Cup officially. He was and will be, I think, forever, the greatest broadcaster that probably ever lived. Uh, Smooth as chocolate, absolutely unflappable um, and just... There was there was a wit and a charm about him that I think has probably gone missing really in, in sort of football punditry and broadcasting these days. I sometimes feel that when you're when you're watching football there's a almost an element of smugness or that oh, we yeah. know something we know something that you don't or we know more than you. And it it was never like that with Des. He was he was there was an element of entertainment um and he just made everything. He was just so smooth and silky. It was just brilliant telly and des was an integral part of that and um my greatest memory really of des is when he read uh if by rudyard kipling oh yeah yeah at the end of the 1998 world cup and they released it on cd they released it on cd you could actually buy des Lynham reading rudyard kipling's if on cd now no one's doing that with jake humphrey are they (laughs) <laughs> oh, poor Jake.
0: Jake's also... The thing he... I... Go on, Sorry, Joe. Go on. No, go on, Joe.
2: I was going to say, the thing... You know, you talk talking about the
1: Snoothers. It's funny that you mentioned the 98 World Cooks. I think we played Tunisia in the first game. Yeah. And that yep. was on BBC One. And Lynam's opening gambit was, uh, hello, welcome to the game, England versus Tunisia. Shouldn't you all be at work? Because <laughs> 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 like... it was a quarter past two kickoff yeah, or something I, really random. I called in sick. Yeah, shouldn't you, all, shouldn't you all be at work? I hope you're not still working for
0: those people, Asher. Uh, no, I was at school, calling six to school. So, yeah, oh, did, did you? Yes. Well, Although I think they showed it in our gym in the end, which was nice of them, but I, I wanted to watch it at home with my dad. I didn't watch it with people like who didn't know anything about football and pretended to support Man United when they supported Chelten when they did back in their days. But um, <laughs> I'm with you, Sid. I mean, I know your profile picture on your Twitter profile is Des, isn't it? So that shows your, your love for the man. And I, I look at Gary Lineker. And I, I just don't get it. And you know, I think he's—I don't think he's a very good presenter whatsoever. When you, especially when you see him on those, um, like Sports Personality of the Year or those award shows, he always comes across really awkward. Imagine Des doing one of those. He's just, as you say, smooth as silk. Um, he's yeah, he was just a man, wasn't he? He
2: was, he was amazing. And there was another great moment. I did share it on my Twitter feed, which was the night. The Woking knocked West Brom out of the FA Cup. I think it was 91 or 92 at a chap called Tim Buzaglo scored a hat-trick. Does anyone remember that? Oh, yeah. I I remember it because
0: my friend Paddy, you guys know, who's been on the show a few times, Always said we always talk about that. And I think Buzaglo was a Chelsea fan and he was interviewed in their program the week after and that always sticks in my mind for some reason. But, yeah, carry on. Uh,
2: Well, um, he went on Match of the Day that night. They whisked him away from the Midlands, got him to the studio down in Shepherd's Bush and he was there in the studio for Match of the Day, and Des is just and uh, Zaglo's absolutely shaking with nerves. He's not blessed with a great deal of confidence and social skills, and you can see he's all over the place, shaking like a leaf. Des coaxes him through about two minutes of this awkward interview, and uh, and then he just says right at the end, and that's it from us here. Say good night, Tim, and Tim just said good night. <laughs> 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 and it was, and it it was just, it was just magical. It was, and and that's what Des was. He made you, he made you as a viewer, feel absolutely comfortable. Um, you you enjoyed the product that much more. I personally don't. I mean, I'm not like you, Ash. I quite, I quite enjoy Gary Lineker, but he's just not in that same league. And it's probably unfair to even put him anywhere close to that same league because Des was almost, and remains to this day almost unassailable. So if I could get one more summer. If they could get, you know, him in Russia or, you know, just reminiscing about World Cups gone by, I would love it.
0: What is he doing now? Has he just retired? I don't he's know. just retired. What? Yeah. yeah, it's a shame. Well, I mean, he's about eighty-three. Yeah, isn't I know, he? but he's probably still cooler than the most.
1: His autobiography is a very charming, very sweet read that is just. Uh, Just lots of stories of his childhood growing up in Ireland and then... Because people don't realise he's Irish, which which kind of shocked me as well when I found that out. Uh, But uh, obviously with the name Lyndon, I should have realised he was Irish, but there you go. Um, Well, he's he's probably more Irish than Andy Townsend was. Or or Tony Gascarino, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Ice Cream Man, as famously called by Jack Shaw. But yeah, Desmond Lyndon's book is just really wonderful... And he's and got some really funny, dry stories in it. There's the one where somebody comes in and uh, tries to teach him how to pronounce the name Bjorn Borg, which is quite funny, and it's, it's obscene. So I'll leave that to uh, people <laughs> to go and have a look at it. And there's also his story about when he went and met Katie Price, and he said, "Do I call you Katie or do I call you Jordan?" And she goes, "Call me Katie Des." who went, "Jordan's the brand," which oh, is always. <laughs>
0: Well, Des so should have been at his own brand, shouldn't he? Because Des Lynham should have been a definite, definite brand. I always remember him breaking the news about Alan Shearer during the Olympics. That always sticks in my mind for some reason. He said, "We have to stop proceedings." Uh, There's been a more important story or something like that because he was always the football man, wasn't he?
1: Yeah. And I think we was- had the same thing with. Uh, I've, I've talked, told this before, but the same thing with Ravinelli. When we signed Ravinelli, it was in the middle of Wimbledon, and and they broke into whatever game it was, and just and I don't know why I was watching tennis, but there you go. But uh, Des came on and went, oh, i got some uh, rather important news from Middlesbrough Football Club. It said they've signed a European Cup-winning striker, Fabrizio Ravinelli, for £7.5 million from Juventus. Fabrizio Ravenelli. you'll know the striker with the grey hair. There's nothing wrong with that. Oh, <laughs> perfect.
0: Perfect. Well, let's end that on there because you won't get better than that. Good old Des. Joe, let's get your first 90s Christmas wish.
1: Well, I'm going to go, if we're going to go with television first... Um, I would like a good sports quiz Sort of before Something like Question of Sport Before it tumbled into the smug pit That it is now Or actually what I'd like to see brought back is Sporting Triangles
0: Oh my god I, That's a name but, from that I haven't heard for years
1: <laughs> Sporting Triangles was the was ITV's knockoff ripper Attempt at uh, a question of sport It was so bizarre There's two episodes of it up on YouTube That I went to go and watch uh, team captains Jimmy Greaves uh, Tessa Sanderson Or Emlyn Hughes Who they'd stolen uh, And Andy Gray's on it as well Andy Gray's one of the team captains And it's Nick Owen presents it Who if you're not familiar with Nick Owen uh, Total Partridge I mean just one of those they <laughs> wearing Yeah Well I mean he's a, he's, Isn't he chairman of Luton Town Yeah Nick I think he
0: some. He was something on the board at one point I don't know if he's yeah, still doing it Yeah I think he's it, chairman
1: yeah. or something But it's So I mean it started in the 80s but it just snuck into the 90s so that's why I, I'm sneaking in it's just terrible uh, they're all wearing matching sweaters with a sporting triangle logos on it but each each in their separate colours representing their team but uh, Nick Owen of course is wearing red because he must be feeling primary Like what a, it's a really terrible dice the clues are really convoluted it's sort of like Home, you know like the home and away rounding question of sport Mm -hmm. it's like that for the whole game it's just really there's one board one counter that people go around and answer questions on and if you go and watch it it's kind of baffling but transfixing at the same time (laughs) so yeah I, i wrote the rules down each team had their color matched to a specialist subject one point for your own subject two if you landed on someone else's color and if you landed on a white, that was all sports. The executive producer was Gary Newbon, by oh. the way. Oh, right, yeah, another '90s name. Oh, okay. One who does turn up on Sky doing those Disney Lives" things with yeah. sort of various, uh, you know, various sort of people? But yeah, very, very, very strange program. Obviously, Jimmy Greaves is there playing the bumbling TV fool, which he has done for sort of ten years on TVM. When they, when TVM got Jimmy Greaves in to do the TV reviews, which was really peculiar, and Andy Gray is so fiercely competitive, like he he actually visibly winces in a couple of the when he gets questions wrong, you see, like it really wounds his masculine pride. So, I kind of like to see that brought back with, uh, you know, without the sort of middle class smugness of the question of sport, really, which I, I find an unbearable program. Question
0: of Sport was kind of sort of geared that it's tried to be like they think it's all over but not quite quite the message of they? It's kind of if like you say, smug posh people try to do a quiz comedy show and that's what it comes across now and it's yeah, it's it's not what like it a used party. to
1: be. Especially sports like a party you're not invited to. Yeah,
0: yeah. Especially with toughers. i, I he does nothing oh. for me. Definitely no, not.
1: I, I just look... no, that, that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see I T V have a crack at that and at least sort of you know, instead of having Andrew Flintoff oh, presenting a show about musicals, which is the weirdest program—very oh, weird—he's
0: doing Fat Friends the musical. He's starring in yeah. that, isn't he? Bizarre. Yeah, he's
1: starring in that. Yeah, very. He's a very nice man, though.
0: Very bizarre. They did a computer game of Sporting Triangles. I've just read.
1: Yes, uh, and it got one of the lowest ranks of all time ever in the history of your Sinclair or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, at forty-eight percent, apparently. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Honestly, it's a wretched program, but it's something quite interesting and compelling about it you know and and i think there's one with frank bruno up online as well it's kind of You're worth right. a watch because obviously frank bruno's playing his uh, you know his, his the caricature that he sort of later became you know but it's it there's just something really wincy and partridgey about it and, and seeing as alan partridge is coming back for christmas we might as well have sporting triangles
0: i know what you mean harry well it seems we're on television um i'll continue the trend then because kind of sort of we've got des line back for one summer then on the commentary desk my wish is I want Barry Davis back commentating on football. Now, I, I, you know, today's commentators, they're all very, you know, good and slick and stuff. But for me, not enough of them carry the emotion and sort of the journey, the take you on the rollercoaster ride through their voice like Barry Davis is. I always thought he was better than John Motson. I love Tony, yeah. Gu- Tony Gubber as well. Got a lot of time for Tony Gubber. But to hear Barry Davis, I don't think he, they're bringing it back this year, do the jump or whatever that horrid Channel for um reality show is it just pains me because I just rather hear his tones on football because I, I think Euro '96 is the one that stands out in people's minds the most. He was commentator for the England Germany uh, semi-final when Gareth Southgate missed that penalty. He didn't just you know say he missed or portrayed the the game as an unbiased commentator. He's an Englishman. He's a, he's a fan of the sport. He's a fan of the team, and he just shouted, "Oh no!" And he could, and that's how everybody felt in that moment when uh, Gareth Southgate missed that penalty in that magical, magical tournament. And I just think he's so... He's not rated enough when people talk about the great commentators. And it, John Watson's brilliant, and he's been doing it for years. But I always find it he got a little bit sort of parody of himself, even in the late 90s. But Barry Davis, again, like Dez, cool, calm, told the story. Same with Tony Gubber as well. I would like to hear a match commentated once again on Barry Davis. How about you, Sid? You a fan of him alongside uh, Des Lynham?
2: Yeah, I I thought uh, Barry what what he brought to the table was um, he he could add a certain level almost of poetry yep. to a game as yeah. commentary. I mean, Motson was pure enthusiasm and statistics and trivia, and his you know his preparation for a match was outstanding and almost you know maniacal by all accounts he he did feverish notes and uh, made references throughout and he um, and I think Motti filled a lot of space whereas what Barry Davies used to do was he just let the game play out I think he chose his moments to commentate uh, a little bit more wisely and when he did he always just seemed to have a bit of a killer line for a killer moment Um, so I completely agree there was a there was a certain ebb and flow to a Barry Davis commentary, and to hear him on Channel Four talking about some tit off Towie <laughs> jumping off a you know, <laughs> jumping off a bridge or something—no, absolutely sacrilegious, So painful, it's disgraceful, disgraceful. I mean, he was still he was still doing Wimbledon, wasn't he, until a couple of years? Ago, yeah, I
0: was think, I think or... he did the odd game until up to a couple of years ago. But yeah, I mean, it's like Andrew Castle and other people now. But yeah, and even then, I mean, tennis commentary is a whole different sort of because you don't talk D do for most of it during the game; it's yeah. in between. So. It's a much easier, I suppose, much more straightforward way to commentate on stuff. Unless you're on the radio. Listening to tennis on the radio is one of the most bizarre things I've ever done because it's so hard to listen to. But, um, yeah, Barry Davis for me, uh, best comment. I
1: also, Barry Davis, sampled in uh, the 1990s dance
3: record... (laughs)
1: I can't remember who to buy, but it's it's called Ooh Our Canton and it's the big Man United. It's it's
3: like uh, right, a
1: yeah. dance tune, and it's it's Barry Davies sampled in it. Uh, it's Canton looking for the early run. Here he is, lovely goal, lovely oh. goal. So it
0: should be as well, because yes. he was the king. Oh, I've got a friend of the show, Matt Davis, who does the uh, Guerrilla Position podcast with me. He's a commentator for Chelsea TV, and that's his hero, and I'm, I appreciate it. and I think for someone who's in the field, it says it says it all that Barry Davis is the one. But also, special shout again to Tony Gubber, who I thought was brilliant. I think that's nostalgia as well, turning on Match of the Day and hearing those two commentate on the games back in that era. That They just really just take me back to that precious, precious time. All right, we're back round the circle again then. Um... Sid, second time around, second wish for you this Christmas.
2: Yeah, I'm going to take it back to pitch level. And I would love to see the return of the true football hard man. Because uh, it is, well, we did a show uh, on it, didn't we? We did an entire show on it. It was great. I think we came to the consensus that Roy Keane was the archetypal uh, 90s football hard man. But that that role, that position within a team has obviously just disappeared over the past 20 something years. Um, and now, you know, players are far more athletic, they're far quicker, more, they're more agile, they're, you know, they're tremendous physical specimens. And, it, you know, it, it's not really a contact sport like it used to be. Um, but I just used to love those hatchet men in midfield who perhaps weren't the most gifted players, but in terms of personality and just sheer aggression. They carved out a niche for themselves in, in big football clubs. So I just, I mean, obviously for me as a West Ham fan, Julian Dix, um, it was, you know, he remains a folk hero because of his aggression and his will to win. Fiddy uh, Jones, even though he became a parody of himself after the football's soccer's hard man, uh, video still, as I said, I, he still holds a place dear in my heart, Roy Keane. Well, you put it—you put Vinnie Jones in your underrated eleven. He I did. The I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I just think I—I I genuinely believe that Vinnie Jones uh, deserves a special place in any '90s football, um, you know, review because he is—he's just. So fundamental, if you like, to to what that era was all about. He was uh, he was brash. He was a character. Really, did he have any business being a top class footballer? Absolutely not. But um, he's, he was so aggressive. He was. Uh, I I loved the crazy gang, even though they rolled us over nearly every time we played them. But I mean, there's other players as well. I mean, um, I was thinking about Reno Gattuso. At Rangers. I mean, an absolute madman, absolutely <laughs> batshit crazy, Re- Reno Gattuso. Um, but what a, he was just uh, mesmeric viewing. I mean, when he lost his rag on a football pitch, you couldn't take your eyes off it. Those old firm derbies were brilliant. It was like a game of rugby when Reno Gattuso was involved and clashing with anyone and everyone. And I just missed that. I missed the, the blood and thunder the guts and the glory that those type of players brought. Um, I think on our football hard men, uh, nineties football hard men podcast, we said the closest, or at least in my opinion that we've had in recent years was Nigel De Jong. Um, and then, and, but then since De Jong's gone, I don't, I, I couldn't even tell you who would even get close to those kind of guys for having that physical presence on a football pitch, um, trying to balance their lack of talent with, um, you know, with their physical traits. Um, so, yeah, if I could get those guys back, I'd have him in a
0: heartbeat. Mm, I, I'm trying to think of somebody. I mean, Scott Brown at Celtic would like to think he's that role, <sighs> but I don't think he is. And I, I, My Celtic friends wouldn't even say he was. But I suppose it's something because of the nature of the way the game's changed. There just isn't that type of player. And I think it misses it. Not so much even for the the blood and the thunder, but for the leadership point of view. For instance, the QPR team at the moment could bloody well do with somebody in the middle of the park, Grabbing the game by the scruff of the neck because that that sort of role doesn't exist anymore. Who was Joe, who was the borough hard man of the of the year, and Nigel. Pearson? I'm trying
1: to think, really. I mean, I can't ever remember Phil Stamp. Oh, Stampy was in and out of the team. <laughs> Jamie Pollock at one point, I suppose, but he had a bit, he had a bit of skill as well when he wanted to, you know. I mean, I mean, obviously we got Paul Ince later on, uh, and he, you know, and I know that there's other views on Paul Ince, but uh, yeah, he came in. Then we seem to just have sort of. Um, I'm trying to think, of well, that that would be who I would say, sort of those three, we we sort of, especially in the Robson time, we didn't really have that kind of uh, play really, but certainly, certainly in maybe a bit of Stampy, maybe a bit of Jamie Pollock, I would yeah. say.
0: I can't help but think of Jamie Pollock when you say skill, and remember that own goal he scored against us that pretty much secured our survival and relegated <laughs> Man City. It's the greatest goal, own goal of all time. I don't That's think I, I think QPR were the same, really. I mean, Alan McDonald was probably the closest that we had because he was he was a nasty piece of work in, in in every good aspect of the of the term. But we didn't really have one in the middle. Like Ray Wilkins was kind of our sort of silky footballer, but he wasn't really a hard man. Um, per se. But yeah, I think Alan McDonald would be clear. I think the the one that always springs to mind um, from hard men who you haven't mentioned yet is Terry Herlock. I mean that Blake was oh, a blimey. he was a nutcase. Absolute nutcase. Absolute. Um, I think Millwall, Southampton, even in his Panini sticker and Merlin sticker, he looked like he could scare anybody in on any day, because, yeah, he he's was... got a uh,
1: bandage on his head. Exactly,
0: <laughs> yeah, blood humming down, yeah, I suppose. Pat Van Dan Howe, he's a bit of a nutter as well, wasn't he, at times, there's another
1: one. Tottenham and Everton, These more 80s though, yeah, rude, Tottenham yeah.
0: in the 90s as well, but yeah. No, good yeah. shout. Uh, Gerald, what is your next wish we can well, if you're, you? are
1: if it's going for hard men, this probably shows the difference between me and Sid, you see because he wants the days of every football team having a hard man and I want to bring back a time of every fo- every football team having a fat man <laughs> 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 because there's a few fat players kicking about you know Andy Reid and Akin Fenwell obviously Lee Tomlin uh, for us came back from uh, came back from he came into pre-season and he was just, honestly, the size of a house. I think he'd just been eating cakes. You know that Simpsons where Homer goes to hell and they try to kill him with donuts? Yeah. And just pouring him in. I think Tomlin was doing that over the summer. But, you know, on the whole, these players are now proper athletes, proper machines, you know. But there just isn't your range of fat player anymore. No Jan Moby, no Ronaldo with his so-called hypothyroidism. Mickey Quinn, Kevin Pressman, Thomas Brolin, oh, Neil Thomas Where's all the fat he's gone? <laughs> I want every football team to have a fat player because what it does is, what a fat player does in your team is, it gives you hope that you can still do this. And of course, you can't. But, you know, the, the lad who's had, who, you know, has four pints tonight in his local, you know, every night of the week for the year, you know, he's still got it in his head that, you know, just because Mickey Quinn's got a bit of timber and scored a hat trick on the opening day of the Premier League season in whatever it was, 93, 94, you know, I can do it too. So speaking as somebody with a bit of a, a little bit of a belly. Oh, it's
0: you know, Christmas I'm, time! I'm,
1: I'm, I'm going out for the, uh, I'm going out for every team having a fat player. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to
0: think of a keeper. I've had a fat player at the time. I don't think they did actually.
1: Stampy remember. Pollock. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's basically the hard man who couldn't move in the middle. Ray Wilkins. Yeah, I don't think they had a. a gen- I mean. Nico Crankart, who we had a couple of seasons ago uh, at QPR, and he should have ripped up the second division. He, he was a, a few pounds heavier than he should have been at the time, but I wouldn't call him fat. Well, well, well
2: if you're going you to go for with, a few pounds heavier, heavier. Who, who was that, Joe? Who
1: was your one? Uh, not just another one later on, but Mido. Yeah. Oh,
0: Mido. Yeah. Have you seen him now?
1: He's huge. Have you seen Mido's profile picture on Twitter? It's absolutely Unbelievable. Is it you it? go and have a look, he looks no, like I, he's in a Bollywood film at Yeah, about I saw it the other day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what were you there saying, Sid? Did.
2: Well, I was gonna say, what about Devin White at QPR? If you're gonna say a few pounds yeah. heavier, or was he just he was a ball of muscle though, really? He Would was more like,
0: well his nickname was Bruno, so I mean that was kind of yeah. where he was just yeah. a big I mean he's what he was terrible footballer. One of those cult heroes that he was so bad he became pretty good to all the QPR fans in that short spell that we had on him, but yeah, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say he was plump like Jan Mulby and, and, and the rest yeah. of but it wasn't very much at d- the end of the fat footballer, wasn't it, the 1990s I suppose, again, when the game has changed to become more and more money into it and all these, all these new uh, fitness regimes and all that nonsense uh, it's, it's the end of the fat footballer, so yeah I agree with you, Joel, we want to see a more sort of rotund figures and we could aspire to rather than the uh, the abs of cristiano ronaldo um my second wish um this kind of stems from not just the 90s but it did end in the 90s and it's something that i moan about every every season when it comes to the fa cup semi-finals please 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 my christmas wish stop playing them at wembley stadium Yes. It absolutely has just taken... I mean, the FA Cup, we all know, isn't what it used to be, and especially because I think the 90s were the last great decade of the FA Cup anyway. But you're not helping its cause by, you know, singing k Sarah, Sarah at the quarter-final stage because you're going to be at Wembley the next game. It's just... I know it started in the 90s with uh, the Sheffield derby and the North London derby in uh, 90... Uh, what was that? 92,
1: 93. But well, that kind of that, that makes sense because you want to bring... All the people from those from those towns, and especially in the case of Arsenal, Tottenham, there that time. But I, I went to um, England, Holland at Wembley, and we got uh, we got a nice freebie from through the FA, and I, I actually brought this up with this guy from the FA who we were talking to, and I said like, can we please get them sent out to Villa Park or Old Trafford or whatever, you know? And he was just like, no, we want to make all the money in the world at this stadium. And I went, Well, you can't argue with it but it does you then can't mourn about the FA Cup having lost yeah. some of its sheen. Yeah, I, I
0: understand the financial part of it. I know they obviously earn more money out of it. I don't think it's a case anymore of covering the cost of Wembley. I think they've done that, especially with the amount of vents that they put on there. The NFL must be paying them and things like that. I, I get that in 2017 going into 18, that is the done thing. I just, I, don't, I think it takes, it's bad enough that you can draw Tottenham in the third round this season and go to Wembley, but I know that's for, <laughs> dif- that's for different reasons. But now that, you know, the semifinals, they should, like you say, Villa Park was also was one, one stadium they always did. But, Given the amount of stadiums we have now, which is got tenfold than we had in the nineties, when you think of the Etihad, the Emirates, you know you, there are new stadiums you could use. The Riverside, of course, it's even London Stadium, Sid. But it's. It's just I just hate it. I absolutely hate it. And if you think of the games. Not that you know, Wembley hasn't had great semi-finals, but I definitely remember more semi-finals played at a neutral venue than I do at Wembley because they all kind of merged together. I think Sid, you've talked about here about the games in nineteen ninety. They're two of the greatest semi-finals I, I can ever remember. I,
2: I would say it's probably the greatest day of domestic mm. football ever, 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 ever. It was so brilliant. Palace Liverpool four three in a. I think it was a. I think it was a one o'clock kickoff and then you went to Manchester United Oldham three all in the afternoon kickoff and you were exhausted by the end of that day I think <laughs> I went to bed about seven o'clock I don't think I even I, honestly I don't think I even made it through the Cosby show I was done absolutely done I was a spent force because I'd reached peak excitement uh, after Roger Palmer was it Roger Palmer who got the equaliser for Oldham I think it was in the three all it was the greatest day ever, would would that have happened at Wembley? Would we have got those atmospheres? I'm not sure we would. Um so I was I say the same agree. Thing. I was gonna say the same thing, you know. I I have talked about this as well before, but the
1: the greatest game of football I've ever been to is Middlesbrough three, Chesterfield three in the FA Cup semi final at Old Trafford. If that game's at Wembley, I don't think that's the same game. Nah. Nah. I, I think that's a completely different game i think that turns into a a, a borough cakewalk really as opposed to the the fantastic craziness of, of that magnificent three all and i still think it's the best game of football i've ever seen in my life it was absolutely magnificent but wembley it's not the same match it doesn't happen i think you just get it then turns into a stalemate of 10 men behind the ball sort of thing you know because it's such a big pitch down there as well
0: yeah, I agree. Those games we were talking about in 1990 that were Villa Park and Main Road. I mean, like, Main Road was a proper football stadium as well. That's why that Man United... Well, interesting that it was in Manchester and it was at Main Road. I'd never really put that connection before. But, yeah, so that would be a, an absolute... Not just a Christmas wish, just a permanent football wish that to stop playing semi-finals at Wembley. But I fear it's not going to happen. Um, third wish, let's mix up the, the order a little bit. Joel, let's go back to you. So, third time round, what are we wishing for?
1: Uh, I'm going to go for... Um... Something that I will never experience again, but something I did get to experience in the nineties, and that's uh, leaving your old stadium for a new oh, one.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, because obviously we did that in uh, we left Essen Park in 94 95 I think was Robson's first season there, and it's just I know I don't I don't think that uh, that Sid will be feeling the same way about this, obviously. <laughs> but for but for us, um, it was just a bright new dawn, a wonderful new home exciting, wiping the slate clean, being fond of what we had. And, you know, a lot of people didn't want to leave Erson Park. And then once the new stadium went up, you didn't hear that ever again. And I think it was just a wonderful thing to, to look back on. But then it just seemed like everything was just exploding and exciting. Uh, and I think it's the same for a lot of teams who um, build new stadia. I think it's just a, I think it's an exciting break with the past and so you can almost transform yourself should that be what you want to do you know i mean Man- manchester city have obviously done that and that stadium's enormously helped them i remember us and bolton seem to get stadiums at the, s- at the same time you know it's just uh, fresh and exciting and i think it's a little bit you know i, I get a bit sad now when i go to the riverside because i think it's started to look a little bit tatty in some places and i go oh god yeah well we have been here 21 years or whatever it is uh, have you been okay. to
0: Loftus Road recently, Joe?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Every time I go to Loftus Road, we get beat, mate. Yeah, I think, I think the last time I went, was a few years ago. But, I mean, if you go to... But that's the thing. I just think it gives you that opportunity to be excited about a fresh start and uh, and look back fondly on your past. But I have a feeling that Mr Lambert is going to disagree
2: with
0: me. Yeah, it's an interesting juxtaposition we got here because I don't think you're going to say the same, are you, Sid?
2: <laughs> well, uh, no, I'm certainly not because uh, Upton Park the Park under the lights was an incredibly special place. I saw some great games in the 90s there. We were involved with some, I mean, we were perennial relegation, you know, um, pr- battlers. And I remember some really good run-ins where the fixture list gave us some midweek games or some Monday night footballs under the lights. And they probably kept us up, to be honest, because it was a special special place but equally i saw some absolute rubbish there i saw <laughs> players i you know i saw plenty of us losing three 0 to wigan at home you know getting outplayed by wimbledon you know every season players getting booed after five minutes it, you know there's been a little bit of revisionist history about upton park but um it did give us some special nights and yeah it's fair to say that moving homes hasn't quite been the experience that people uh hoped it might be within the West Ham hierarchy
0: well I, I can't really comment on this one because it's not an experience I've had yet so if we do this podcast in maybe 10-20 years time uh, <laughs> and we finally get a new ground maybe I'll know but yes yeah, I can see how the difference being because I, I feel like Middlesbrough was a natural progression whereas West Ham it felt like it wasn't really needed to move stadiums so I, mm. I, I guess that's the, the difference um, well I
1: lived I lived right next to, literally next door to West Park I mean if you, Anybody who knows Middlesbrough at all, I used to live on Costa Street, which is literally—I mean, absolutely. Our when Boris got a goal, our windows would rattle, you know, because it was it was that mad, um, and and there just wasn't any room for anything to be hmm. done. They couldn't have transformed it. It was a Victorian ground that was falling to bits, and it was in a—it's in, a, you know, it's now houses in a residential area down, you know, just down some back streets, and it just couldn't have worked, you know. They couldn't have had what they've got now, and I know that our stadium became the identity for other grounds you know Stoke City uh, Britannia oh it's 365 now isn't it um, oh, four nine. It's, exactly the, it's exactly the same ground as Middlesbrough it's ex- the exact same design you know except they haven't got the corners in and, and we do uh, so there's, there's, there's that sort of thing that it, it was just a, a really good lovely exciting probably you know that three four years is, is the most exciting time ever to have been a Borough fan I think
0: mm. okay Sid your, your next Christmas wish
2: well, I'm going back to uh, something you said, Ash, about a tradition that you wish would end. Uh-huh. And I would say the end of the transfer window. Ooh. I've hated it. I've, I've absolutely hated it since the moment it was. Uh, it became part of the English football season. because, And I think actually it's made everything around football in this country a lot harder. Because when you think about it, being a journalist before the transfer window was the easiest job in the world you just made up a transfer story and people used to, I used to decide (laughs) what newspaper I bought purely on what transfer story was on the back page. That was, that's (laughs) uh, there was absolutely no brand loyalty whatsoever. I couldn't give a monkeys about politics. I just thought who's going where Yep, that'll do for me and I'll buy that paper. And the transfer window, if it had been in place during the nineties would have robbed us. Of so many great transfers and moments, and could have taken the season in a completely different direction. I mean, Cantona wouldn't have gone to Manchester United yeah. until January. That's true. You yeah. know, that's, that's you know, that's, monumental. That's, that's, that is, yeah. That's six weeks. Mm. Six weeks without Cantona, they don't win the league. Without that, <laughs> West Ham I mean, the greatest probably bit <laughs> of transfer business that Harry Redknapp yeah. ever did. Paul Kitson and John Hartson. I mean, two two weeks before, we had Mike Newell up front. We couldn't score a goal for love nor money. And and then, all, you know, Mike Newell and Ian Dowie, we were done. We were absolutely gone. And then Harry, you know, get, twists the board's arm, gets five million quid. Hartson and Kitson come in. They save us. Uh, probably sa- they saved Redknapp's job. Um, there were just transfers like that that it gave you hope as a football fan That anything could happen, your season could change around, one good signing could transform your team's fortunes. Whereas now, it's just so mundane from, you know, for those three month spells, all you can do is overanalyse football matches. And you don't believe any of the transfer rumours you, you know, you read because there's three months before anything can happen anyway, which makes it totally redundant. Mm. I just don't know why it exists. I know it's something, you know, it's about...
1: I just, I just I can't get my head around why it actually exists. It's You know, It's we live in a world, you know, we live in a capitalist world, you know. Why can't you go out and buy something when you want to go and buy it? You know, it's part and parcel of the game. And we've all been there when we've lost players who we didn't want to lose particularly. But tough, <laughs> you know. I'm just like, why doesn't it exist? Why can't if, you know, why can't if we're struggling in... February, why can't we go and spend £20 million on a striker? It's we, You know, I don't know of anything in any other walk of life where that occurs really, apart from sport. It
0: is, when you put it like that and you really think about it, you do wonder why it originally was put in place. I mean, I guess now it stops Man City from just buying who they want, when they want, when they've got the money and all the big boys. I think originally they wanted to stop that so that the money sort of filters down at a slower pace and the, the smaller clubs get more money and because there's this period when they can all do trades but i don't think it's ever really worked out like that anyway people buy their players when they want to buy them and just sort it out in january so well look at
1: this look at the situation with diego
2: costa
0: yeah exactly they just put him on the sidelines until it was the right time that he could go it's it, it's a you really would think
2: that diego costa he's got a shot at being the bosman of this generation hasn't he because he's I, just got to sit there. He's yeah. got to sit there. He can't move. He can't get another job. He can't get a pay rise. He's just trapped. Now, you know, which is not far off what John Bosman was. So, yeah. you know, I, I don't think that Diego Costa is going to go to a courtroom anytime soon. But you're absolutely, it does feel like restraint of trade. I, I, don't, I, I don't get it. Football was way more exciting when you could pick up the paper, you know, and find out you were picking up Stan Collymore on a free transfer and he was back to his best. <laughs> you know, so, no, no, not for me. Good night. God bless. No, thank you.
0: The official lying, recording is, it would initially behind blah blah. It would improve team stability and prevent agents from searching for deals all year round. That was but, one of well,
1: them. Stability, I get, but again, who cares? And I can leave my job tomorrow. Although tomorrow is my first day, so I won't be doing that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's restrictive you know, of a trade, you know, like you're saying. You know,
1: we can all leave our jobs and go and get jobs somewhere else, should we wish. It just seems really restrictive and weird. Why should you have to sit and wait for three months or four months? And you know you what? Not, I... Why shouldn't you be allowed to go and buy a player if everybody wants to do the deal? It just seems so odd. I just don't know why it exists.
0: I think, as also, I think we're all fed up with deadline day. I mean, I used to revel in it, uh, I would say maybe five years ago, but it's it always ends up like a damp squib, and it's really not... The day it used to be and sky goes all out and all bells and whistles and I think I've finally had enough of dead especially the January one it's always such a disappointment I'm with you it does
1: give it does always give me an opportunity to tweet my picture of uh, what's he called what's he called Jim Jim White yeah my, my picture of Jim White from the night oh of course looks like <laughs> he looks like Paul Carr so yeah, I like always does. every transfer deadline day I whip that one out uh, so you know and if you if you haven't seen that just go and look for Jim White Paul
2: Carr, and you'll see it it's
0: quite a remarkable bit of stuff if you're talking
2: about if you're talking about great transfer day pictures though not transfer day actually but just transfer pictures another one we would have been robbed of because it took place in February 96 Tino Esprit he's the one I thought
0: of when you said it he came out in the snow didn't he
2: he came out in the snow he had that that sort of Del Boy coat on he'd never seen snow before you know he couldn't quite understand what what was going on here Um, but that that was such an exciting moment when Espria signed. Um, it's Not to... for us, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> he played the first game, didn't he? Yeah. yeah.
1: We talked about, no, because yeah. he made his debut against yeah. us. We were beating Newcastle 1 0. And it, again, it was Faustino Aspria versus Chris Morris. And we lost 2 1.
2: <laughs> Who'd have thought? And, and he'd had a glass of red wine that day. Do you know that story? Oh, no. Go on. He, he was drinking red wine on the coach. <laughs> uh, he was down. He was down the front with uh, Kevin Keegan. Peter Beardsley came on. Didn't recognise him. Didn't know who he was. He was introduced to the team on the coach on the way to Borough. Oh, and um, was it was it was it at Borough? Or was it at Yeah, yeah. It was yeah, yeah. Uh, he was introduced, and Keegan said, "You know, uh, Pedro, because that's what he used to call Beardsley. This is this is Tino Asprilla. Uh, I'm thinking of sticking him on the bench today." And and Beardsley said to him, "He's he's drinking red wine, gaffer." And Keegan said, "Yeah, he's only had one. He'll be fine." And that's <laughs> the... so he had a glass of red, and then got, got you know it... he came on after sixty minutes and set up the winner, didn't he? Yes, got Noel to set up both of them. Oh, fantastic. God, no, so yeah, anyway. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's more evidence, if needed, that the transfer window is madness. Mm. I'm changing my mind. I'd like I'd like it to stay in place.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it also makes me think of a, another wish that I didn't think of. I wish I had is that you know characters and Mathericks and type players like Tino Espria and and mad characters like. George Campos and Paul Gascoigne and people like that—that that is what this decade misses. That's my honourable you, mention. You've just
2: nicked my next wish.
0: <laughs> well, we can go in more detail. We'll do that in a minute then. Uh, let me right, just—I'll I'll rattle through my uh, my third one, and it's an obvious one for anyone who listens to this podcast most of the time. I'm going to talk about kits for a minute, uh, obviously, because it's the 90s and it's the best decade for football kits of all time. I don't necessarily mean that they have to be garish and crazy, even though I like that, and I think we have seen elements of that um recently especially this season with the nods to 90s kits and some of the world cup ones as well but what i really really would love to see and it's just they're just beautiful these kits the collars the laces 1992 umbro kits oh i loved them and we've not seen laces on football kits ever since i'm sure there's probably some stupid rule about it in some stupid manual as there are with the numbers and the stripes and the hoops you're meant to have and all that but I, it just it looks something like classy but also very kind of retro at the same time you just talk about the man united newton half heaths the ipswich kit that villa kit with the pinstripes, stripes all brilliant kits i just wish kits were less templated and i know there were templates in the 90s i'm not completely ignoring that but each team normally at least their first kit was a bespoke kit of their own and i wish that we had that now instead of nike just rolling out that sort of pe pattern for everyone like they have done for city chelsea and tottenham this season so i won't go into kits because we've done it so much on this that's my third and wish on my christmas wish Give it, bring back the 90s inspired kits quick word on that from both of you because i know you'll get sick to death of me talking about kits but sid got to love a 90s kit haven't you
2: yeah absolutely um, I, I disagree with you though on the your favourite England kit which is that three lions oh. one that David White wore isn't it, it oh, did he yes. wear it with Brian Dean did yeah. Brian Dean wear the that kid yeah. the blue one yeah. Yeah. Against, yeah. I, I, I thought against that Spain. was atrocious
0: <laughs> oh it's amazing
2: <laughs> I, thought it was, I thought it looked like a sixth form class had done it for their homework <laughs> honestly it was one of the most appalling things I've ever seen um, no no so I, I disagree with you on that one. But the lace-up collars, oh. um, yeah, a thing of beauty. I mean, Manchester United's black kit, when that came out, yeah. I was absolutely gobsmacked black, seeing black Cantona. Kid. Yeah, the, the all-black kit, Cantona with his collar up. I mean, we at West Ham, we, we didn't... Sorry, mate? Sharp you, Cal. Yeah, oh, brilliant. Um And then... But at West Ham, we didn't really have any kits of note. Ours were absolute crap, really, for most of the time. BAC windows, pony. Yeah, it was. It, we didn't have a great decade for kits, but I could appreciate the other ones out there for sure.
0: You did dabble with a crew, though, that beautiful colour that only ever happened in the 90s, that weird, creamy colour. Towards the end of the decade, I think West Ham had an, an away kit in that weird. And
1: so did so did Liverpool have an away yeah, kit in that weird
0: yeah. and Cholton as well. The the England... yeah,
2: I, I called it boiled shite. <laughs> <laughs> the England <laughs> kit
0: you mentioned uh, John Devlin, out uh, the kit guy the, of true colours. I call the Oracle of kits. He calls that the cowardly lion kit because he thinks the lions look like they're actually quite cowardly across that, but. For me, best. Well, they sort of
2: look like they're running away from something. Yeah,
0: well, amazing kit. And those games you're talking about is the uh, friendly against Spain, we lost 1 0, and I think we wore it against the Czech Republic as well. I mean, only ever wore it twice, and in an England B game where Mark Cately played as well. Joel, quick word on kits with you. I know what we're going to talk about the kit that you never won in, but that is the best borough kit of the decade, surely. The,
1: the white with the blue. Oh,
0: yeah, great kit.
1: Yeah, we had some good away kits. I mean, that, the ICI kit that we wore in the first Premier League season. Was one of the best selling kits in the country, oh, which you read really okay. that. An Admiral kit as well, that one. Oh, People classic. Sort of quite tend to dig that one. But, you, you know, collars, granddad collars at Newcastle and lacy collars mm. and. You know, this just not this experimentation
0: now. No, not at all. Not at all. But uh, we talk kits lots and lots on this podcast. So that's before we get into our final two wishes each, uh, go to today's interview uh, we spoke to earlier in the week. He's the first American to play in the Premier League, only the second American to score in a cup final. His former Sheffield Wednesday, Derby, West Ham for a bid spell and Nottingham Forest midfielder John Harkes speaking to me on Alive and Kicking.
3: Joining me now on the line is a uh, former Sheffield Wednesday uh, midfielder, later Derby West Ham as well, and somebody who wore the greatest kit of all time at the 1994 World Cup, John Harkes. How are you doing, John? I'm
4: good, thank you. I'm not sure about the uh, the best, best kit of all time, but yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, having me on.
3: Oh, it's one of my favorites. We'll get to that though. Um us start at the very beginning though. Um, you landed in Sheffield in 1990. How does somebody who was born in New Jersey end up at Sheffield Wednesday in, in that sort of
4: era? I think number one thing is desire um, and and complete you know ignorance of uh, you know what I was trying to do. Uh, certainly, uh, you know most players that want to get to the highest levels are, are very ambitious and. You know, for me, it was just uh, growing up, first-generation American, uh, Scottish family, and Scottish backgrounds and you know, being exposed to the game at such an early age. Um, you know, from 11 years old, 12 years old, seeing all the uh, the highlights of, of the best, you know, Liverpool sides in the 70s and 80s, and, and you know, Man Uniteds of the past, and. So for me, it was like, wow, that's something that I aspire to do. Um, I didn't think it would ever come to realization, uh, but I think when you do uh, put yourself in a good position, uh, qualifying for the 1990 World Cup uh, for the first time in our country, uh, first time in 40 years, getting back to the global stage, I think it was, uh, you know, that that couldn't have hurt, you know, and certainly in terms of exposure and uh, great connections through different people. Um, ended up at Sheffield Wednesday, and, and it wasn't an easy task. Took me a while um, in terms of convincing them not just sort of the type of player I am, but more about, I think, about the personality and character and spirit. Can you actually hack it there in the English leagues? Because it was difficult to break in as a first American. Mm.
3: What was it? It was a bit of a culture shock. Obviously, back then it was a very different to what we see football now. There was a lot more, the culture was different. How was it for you as an American going into? That sort of culture in in England in Sheffield in that time.
4: Yeah, I enjoyed it actually. I mean, I I, am, I embraced uh, the people of Sheffield, um, you know, in, in New Yorkshire that area because uh, you know I grew up in a in a, a blue collar tough town uh, near Newark, New Jersey, in Kearney, and uh, it was all football every day, you know, for a, a gang of us basically, and. You know, it was hard working with Scottish, English and Irish immigrants that were settling there, uh, coming over for work from the textiles and everything else. And so for me, it was like it, it wasn't a big shock in some ways. I think for a traditional American growing up in the States, it would have been, you know, completely shocked. But for me, it was like a transition that I enjoyed and uh, and that I embraced right away. Good people, warm people. People that are passionate about their clubs, both Sheffield Wednesday and Sheffield United. And to have a rivalry like that in the city uh, was pretty amazing. So, um, you know, getting thrown right into it was pretty great. It was good for me. Uh, I needed that. And uh, certainly you needed to sink or swim right away. But um, I'm glad I didn't sink.
3: (laughs) Those three years at Wednesday, a lot happened. It was quite eventful. Very underrated team, I thought, as well. Of course, you won the League Cup. During that time, I mean, what was that like? You were the first American to play in the final as well. What, what was that like?
4: Um, winning the League Cup was amazing, actually. Um, I think the most, uh, you know, hard to understand uh, process in that is, is that it came in seven months of me being a professional, and uh, you know, quite often I have conversations, whether it be with like a Roland Nielsen or Chris Waddle or Nigel Pearson. You know, we would all be talking about how long it takes some professionals to ever get to Wembley. You know, throughout the career, and some don't. And so, for me, um, you know, getting a contract, number one, uh, scoring a, a goal of the year against Derby County on the way to the Cup, and then and then beating Manchester United in, in seven months. <laughs> you know, of of being a pro is pretty amazing, uh, and it's difficult to process. I think to to, to take it all in. It really. Starts to hit you, you know, uh, throughout the years and uh, what you were able to do. And, and I was only able to do that with great management and, and great players around me because it was a fantastic team, as you say, and a very underrated team. I think Ron Atkinson uh, and his staff had a vision of what they wanted to do, um, how they wanted to, in some ways, uh, you know, kind of rebuild Sheffield, once and get it back up to the top. And with the experience that he had previously at Manchester United, obviously going up against his former club, um, we had a lot of insights to you know, how they would play. And so matching up against them was tremendous. An, an honor for me to actually be in Hallow, Wembley Stadium, um, and to actually walk up the steps and receive a winner's medal. Um, something that I'll never, ever forget.
3: You mentioned Big Ron. He's obviously a massive character of the time. What was he like to play under as a manager?
4: Uh, I think he was great because he he was a he was a realist and uh, he would treat everybody the same. Um, he had a great banter about him and great character. As he said, his personality was bigger than life. But at the same time, there was this uh, deep personal connection that he had with his players, and uh, he was a great man manager. And he was a great motivator, and uh, from that perspective, for me, it was incredibly important to have a coach like that somebody that did want to reach out and push me and, and nudge me at times and then you know, know when to you know when i was down or if uh um, you know if i wasn't in the side at a particular time um put my his arm around me and get me going you know a little tough love at times so for me i thought he was a great manager i mean fantastic mm.
3: you were not only with your first american to score in the league cup you're the first american to play in the premier league and i need the second to score at a cup final i mean do those accolades, do they mean something? Is that a big deal
4: to to you? Oh, it's a massive deal. I mean, I think, you know, as again, you can't take for granted the opportunities that present themselves to you. And, uh, you know, you know, thankfully, again, you know, with the great players around me, I was able to, to put myself in good positions. And, you know, scoring against Arsenal in the League Cup Final in 93 was a tremendous, you know, uh, achievement on a personal standpoint, but from a collective, it was disappointing because we wanted to win it. We wanted to lift a cup. Mm. Neither, whether, whether it was the FA Cup or the League Cup, final, one of those uh, titles we wanted to lift. Uh, so, I mean, we had a lot of experiences, even playing against Sheffield United in the semifinal at Wembley Stadium where the whole city was basically a ghost town and everybody was down at Wembley. was tremendous, but you always want to win on those occasions. That's what we compete for. Um, but, yeah, it was great scoring the goal. I mean, to put a goal... Um, in the 11th minute against Arsenal, one of the the, the famous clubs of English, you know, history, uh, David Seaman and goal. I mean, uh, you can't write those scripts.
3: You had you spent time at Derby as well. What were your memories uh, of playing at Derby County?
4: Yeah, Derby County, fantastic club. I think in the transition stage there, and Lionel Pickering being the the uh, owner wanted to galvanize the, the group and uh, a younger group, um, as to say. I was one of the more experienced players when I went from Sheffield Wednesday to, to Derby. So it was a it was a different setup, it was a different atmosphere at that time and uh they were looking to push obviously to get into the premiership and uh you know, we came very close by losing to Leicester City in the in the in the playoff final, uh where we dominated the game um uh, handedly and uh just didn't finish our chances, you know, and so for me, it was a great, great time. Paul Williams, Paul Kitson, Tommy Johnson, uh, you know, Marco Gabbiadini, some great players that were uh, Mark Pembridge, quality, quality players. And, um, you know, you look at the, the way that we were trying to, you know, really encourage not just ourselves but the city itself and the community. They really get behind the boys at that time. was was pretty special. It was short-lived for me because I left there and then went on to West Ham Uh uh, before I came back to, you know, help develop the league here in Major League Soccer in 96. But having said that, you know, I also had family in Derby. My Uncle William was there uh, on my mom's side, and uh, so I was able to kind of reconnect with my family there. My cousin Neil is still there, Neil Burnside, and, uh, you know, it was great. It was a great time, you know, at Derby. It was just unfortunate we didn't have more success, then. and I thought we deserved because we had a quality team.
3: We can't talk to anyone from this era, especially yourself, being an American and not talk about the 94 World Cup. What was it like uh, Had to play in your own country? I mean, for me, it's my favorite World Cup just for the color and everything. We'll talk about the kit in a minute. But what was it like for just that World Cup for you? <laughs> <laughs>
4: you know, I love your the sarcastic humor. I love it because the kit had this like denim blue where we had stars on it. Uh, horrendous red, like, burgundy shorts. I don't know what they were, but they were terrible. But uh, the the occasion itself was tremendous. I mean, to be able to host a World Cup in your country, um, you know, in such a short history of the game in our country was amazing. And we needed it as well. The platform was set. I think that we had done enough uh, qualifying in 90 and, uh, you know, really an eye-opener for a lot of uh, fans in our country uh, to really kind of latch onto us and support us in the 94 and hosting the games here. But, you know, you also know the U.S., uh, the demographics are, are, are incredible. And when you think about the melting pot that's here, um, people from all over the world uh, settled on the U.S. Uh, for the American dream, as they say. And uh, they they came out in the numbers. I mean, it's the most populated World Cup, I think, still to date. Um, ticket sales, everything. Uh, it was a great, great, it was a huge World Cup festival, you know, throughout. And from from our perspective as a team, uh, we were looking to prove ourselves, not just qualify like we did for 90, but actually get out of the first round and start to get a little bit more respect, you know, on the world stage, And uh, which we did. It was tremendous. And, uh, you know, playing against Switzerland and, and Detroit in the first game was was pretty interesting because it was in the Silver Dome, which is the first time I think mm. we've been enclosed a stadium. And then when we go on to the Rose Bowl in California on a massive, massive scale with that stadium, uh, playing against Colombia, one of the favorites that were picked by Pelé to actually win it. Uh, we upset them 2-1, uh, moved on to play against Romania, and, uh, and then advanced through to uh, the, the, the next round against Brazil on July 4th. So for, for me, for the, for the players that were here, for the families that, that took in the occasion, and also from a business standpoint, it was a massive positive situation for everybody. It really was. And it, it helped uh, really propel the, the, the sport in our country to the next level.
3: I'm not being sarcastic with the kit as well, John. I've got it sitting in my office. It is actually genuinely my favorite kit of all time. But what I will like about that team, a lot of characters, Alexi Lalas and great players in that as well. We spoke to Alexi about it, Eric Ronaldo, Roy Wegley. It was a really collective group of, of very good players as well, wasn't it?
4: Yeah, it was a great, great group of players, and I think it was a it was a players that were a, a team that was full of individual specialists, um, uh, if you will, and it, it had you know the makings of of coming together, the chemistry, and if you can pull that chemistry together, it was it was pretty special, and uh, we we showed that you know throughout the World Cup on numerous occasions, and uh, yeah, some quality quality players. Um, you know, we had Tony Miola in goal. We had uh, Lexi Marcelo Balboa in the back line, in the center back position. Paul Caligiuri, Fernando Covijo, who is the uh, general manager of FC Dallas currently. Myself, Mike silver Tab Ramos. Um, you know, Eric Ronaldo, um, Thomas Dooley, Ernie Stewart. I mean, some some fantastic players coming together. You know, to kind of galvanize and, and, and you know really lift the nation to a next level if we could. And uh, and uh, I, th- I think we did a pretty good job with that. The kit itself was pretty interesting. I, I was a fan of uh, the the, uh, the away kit, which we never really wore much. But it was a red and white striped one, which not a lot of people saw. But uh, the home kit was an interesting one. It was difficult to wear.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's very thick.
4: I have, the- I remember it being very thick. The one I've got here is very
3: thick, which in that heat must have been horrible. Finally, I, I just want to ask you because you, as you mentioned, you were one of these sort of early people in the MLS during the late nineties. What was it like for? For somebody who didn't know the beginnings of the of the league, what was it like in the in the mid nineties? What for you? Playing in the mid nineties, sorry, I missed that. Um, the was like the beginning of the, the MLS? MLS. What was it like compared to the sort of the juggernaut we oh, see right. now? What was the early days of the MLS like?
4: Yeah, the early days were scary because it was a, we're going into the unknown. I mean, I'm leaving you know the Premier League at the time, playing for West Ham, oh. on loan, and. Uh, you know you're looking for some stability in in what you're doing as a professional player you know what what comes next um you know what are what are the short term goals long term goals or what what are we going to do here and uh it it almost didn't come off i mean because after the world cup in 94 there were talks of it starting in 95 that didn't happen and then 96 finally came around the ownership groups, the business uh, side of it you know came together and uh it, it, we became salesmen of the league uh, in, in, in some aspects because, uh, as players, we were, you know, was constantly making appearances because we needed to get, expose the game and get it out there and let people know that, you know, from you know, uh, from from a cultural standpoint, this is something that we're trying to develop and build, you know, as a, as a major professional league because it was a massive 12-year absence of, of pro sports at the highest level in our country when the NESL folded. Uh, where, where so many great quality players came over from, you know, the UK and Europe and even South America um, to come compete here. So um, it was it was almost like a, a starting over process, but thankfully with the World Cup and the exposure we had in 94, um, that made it a little bit easier, but we needed to sell it. We really did. And uh, I can't count, you know, and remember how many appearances we actually made in, in the community and different um, partnerships and partnerships commercial situations that we try to do to kind of grow the game, but it was, it was, it was, it was something that we had a chip on our shoulder, uh, that generation of players and we wanted to have the game succeed because we loved it so much. And so for me personally, I I would do anything to drive the game and grow the game still to this day. I'm still growing the game as much as I can. And, uh, you know, from that perspective in the nineties, it was a little bit scary because, we weren't sure if it was we were going to pull it off. To be fair, and when you start, you know, with ten clubs, and then you go to twelve, and then you end up going back to ten again in three years later, it was a scary situation for us. We held on. I think we were one signature away from the league folding, uh, but thankfully, uh, we call him Uncle Phil, but it was Phil Anschutz, uh, one of the owners of the LA Galaxy, who actually took on four or five other clubs uh, from the operating costs and, and survived, kept the league alive and survived. And so. You know, it was it was a hard task, but it was something I would never, ever give up. It was fantastic.
3: Brilliant. And the rest of the day is history, and you see it, what it's like now. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, John. That was a really interesting insight into, into the 90s with you. Thank you very much.
4: My pleasure. Great to be on. Uh, love the show. And any time you guys need me, give, you, give me a shout. Will do. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks. Bye. Cheers, John.
0: Welcome back. That was great stuff there from John Harkes. So it is my mission to bring back the whole team of the USA 94 on this podcast at some point. It's just like Justin Lee Collins back in the day did that horrible bring back show. Um we were talking before the break uh, about Mavericks so I believe that's your next wish, Mr Lambert.
2: It is indeed mate. Sorry, I just can't can't leave John Harkes lovely bloke crap at West Ham. So anyway, I'll leave that. Yeah, he didn't yeah, talk much I'll about. I'll just his say
0: Wednesdays. it
2: again. Yeah. yeah. I'll just say it again. 12 absolutely nondescript appearances. Sorry sorry about that, John. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, Mavericks. Well, I was just, y- you coined it, mate. Characters, Mavericks, people who were unpredictable. I mean, the, the players that sprang to mind, obviously, Matt Letitia, probably for me, the greatest Maverick, certainly in English English football. But uh, Sasa Churchich, you know, <laughs> mad as a box of frogs. Uh, you know, a Bos- C- big brother. Oh god! Uh, I think he was a porn star at one stage yeah, as yeah. well. Absolutely mental. Uh, people like Christo Stoichkov, who looked like he wanted to kill you at any moment. Romario, who would, he, who could basically have played football with his flip flops and still scored thirty goals a season. Now a politician. Uh, I, now a politician. <laughs> uh, All yeah, and also the you know the most um, what's the word. The most dubious accountant, certainly in terms of goals scored in the history of football as well. That's from Mario for you. His thousand goals included. Yeah, Yeah, including the ones he scored in headers and volleys and everything. Exactly, three and in. Um, Yeah, yeah. I I miss uh, those type of players. Everyone's too samey. It's cookie cutter, conveyor belt of players. I miss the characters, bring them back.
0: Yeah, it gets knocked out of them for me. Uh, youth level, I believe. Now I think it's like a conveyor belt, isn't it? A lot. I mean, a lot of the guys we talk to on here, former footballers, you talk about the YTS system and the lessons they learned there. They don't do any of that. I think that builds a character as well if it's not even already in you. But just, I mean, Paul Gascoigne is the one for me, and I know he's had his demons in later life. But for the character that he was, especially in the nineties, you just. And when people ask me why do you love this decade so much, it's because of the guys you just reeled off. You don't really see that, and when you do in the modern era, they're either. A, a foot sort of back you know said not all there or not committed enough and not seen as the right way to be or right way to perform or act as a footballer and i think you just they're about they can be a robots is a harsh term but a bit like robots and it's 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 sad because the 90s had them all didn't it joe
1: yeah i mean everybody's just so super media trained and <laughs> yeah, everybody's completely. so scared of everybody's so scared of buggering up your brand or whatever be that their own personal brand or the brand of the football club or the brand of Adidas or Nike or ever, so yeah, that sort of maverick lunatic is is missing. We, I mean, we used to have. I mean, obviously we had Gascoigne, but uh later on we had Karen Boy, who claimed he used to see uh flying cigars floating around in his house, and was married to a supermodel. You know, I miss that sort of stuff. I like to have a good old fashioned nutter in your team. I think it's, uh, <laughs> I think I think it's it's good fun. So so basically what we've got, so we basically want an, an amalgam of Gascoigne. Vinnie, Gascoigne and Vinnie Jones with a bit of Akinfenwa mixed in I think we all want, don't we?
0: If you want to call Akinfenwa fat to his face by all means do it I wouldn't do that I wouldn't do that
1: Because he's a big lad, trust me yeah. He
0: eats a lot of chicken apparently is what he told me Okay, so yeah, like you said we've got a, we're building our own team of 90s we wish we were there now, aren't we? But Joe, what is your penultimate wish uh, this Christmas?
1: I'm going to go for uh, seeing as we're talking about characters and cheeky people and uh, this fella's a little bit uh, got a little, just a little bit more character than the guy that's in the job now, both with middles for connections, of course. I want Terry Venables back as England. Man. Oh, that was nearly one of mine. Go on. <laughs> uh, I just think for all of the above that we mentioned, I mean, you've got to remember that all those games that we played leading up to Euro 96 were pretty diabolical, but there was something within Venables, and I think it's something that the FA have sort of. Uh, strove to avoid now. I think since Kevin Keegan was a people's choice and Venables was very much the people's choice at that time. And the FA overlooked loads of stuff that they certainly wouldn't go anywhere near now were Point Venables. But in the end, he was the like you know right man for the job. And if Paul Gascoigne had been one second earlier, then he probably would have led us to our second trophy in English football history. Um, I just think he... It's going to be like it's not really a word born associates with Terry Mennell, but he always came across as very honest. With as, as far as football matters and the England team concerned, he didn't seem to shirk anything, and and, and it felt like you had somebody you know again. It's this Southgate. I was at uh, the one show, bizarrely enough, representing Middlesbrough in the FA Cup draw at the beginning of the year, and Southgate was there, and he was doing a little interview, but you could see him looking off camera at the sea if he was allowed to say certain things or how he should choose his words. And I know that's part of your media training and all the rest of it, but there's a part of it that just comes across as completely disengaged, dishonest and, uh, you know, robotic. And uh, I don't think that's anything you could throw at Terry Venables, really. I thought he was, it was sad when he went. And obviously it, we, we've hardly covered ourselves in glory since then. And I, I always kind of wonder how it would have been what he would have done with players like Beckham who were part you know all that golden generation mm. that came in next Beckham and the Nevilles and everybody I think Neville was already played but um yeah I, I think you know it was ropey leading up to Euro 96 you know and we weren't scoring Shearer hadn't scored 11 goals or whatever it was and everybody was saying it was the Christmas tree uh formation which is very apt for when we're recording this yeah uh, but yeah, Terry Venables or somebody of that ilk, back as an England manager, even just for a game, I'd be quite happy with
0: that. I, I seem to think Terry Venables, whenever you hear players interviewed, former players, and they ask about managers and who was the best and most well-tactical tactic you know, tactical manager, <laughs> Terry Venables always comes up, I think... He was possibly ahead of his time. I mean, you look at the Christmas tree formation, that was very new. I think he would have gone into the next decade and someone like him now would really, really do well as England manager. What do you reckon, Sid?
2: Well, uh, the thing about Terry Venables is if if you've read Broken Dreams by Tom Bauer, you'll realise that the man off the pitch, and that's why um, Joel offered that little caveat about him, was nothing more than a crook. An absolute crook, without a shadow of a doubt. But I have to agree. I loved the moments when El Tell was in charge. I loved. I, I just loved to see. I could look at pictures of him coaching. Um, everyone made a big fuss about seeing Guardiola coach uh, Raheem Sterling, didn't they? And it was really mm. good footage. But watching people like Venables on the training ground, and watching players listen to him, and that links to what my final wish would be. So I'll, I'll sort of cut it short in a moment. Um, yeah, I enjoyed every moment on it. Of it, he brought us probably some of our best moments of the nineties. And he he was a character. He was a maverick himself, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah How many was. football managers like? belt out covers of my way by Frank Sinatra and released them on cd
1: i mean we were on about desmond line and releasing it on cd terry venables has had singles out but i think i've got one of them
0: <laughs> and, and they're not that terrible either that's that's the surprise. Oh, thing sing.
1: yeah he's got it's, some pipes on him he has man, he yeah. has for
0: sure yeah yeah no definitely well that was going to be one of mine um it wasn't on my final list so i'm glad you've you bought terry venables up um mine's slightly oh, off hold the...
1: on hold on hold on give me a second I have a copy in my... <laughs> I've just gone to the CD rack. I've got a copy of Terry Venables doing If I Can Dream on CD from 2010. Amazing. So there you go.
0: He's still doing it in the next few decades. Wow. Go on, LTL. Yeah. Joe,
2: to- can I just ask you one question? What yeah. was the CD next to Terry Venables <laughs> on your but shelf? The, just so just, I just want to build a bigger picture of it. Just of let me know what was hold the on, one next. On,
1: on. I, think it, I think it might have been. Hold on. Uh, it's uh, a copy of The Verve. Oh, can't oh. be a bit sweet symphony. Okay, it. right. Well, that's you know, I'm one of them. Everything's in alphabetical order. It should
0: mate. the way it should be as well. I agree yeah. with you, Joe. Um, my penultimate wish uh, kind of links into that kind of England era because I wish we had the same plethora of striking options in 2018 that we had in the 90s for England. Because I just look at our options now. I mean, you could probably say this about the central midfield and even the central uh, defence at times as well. But, I mean, as good as Harry Kane is, and I'm a very big fan of Harry Kane, outside of him, the cupboard's pretty bare when you look at guys like Daniel Sturridge, who doesn't get in the team, Danny Welbeck's in and out of the team, Jamie Vardy for all his blood and thunder, I don't think really he's an England player for the future, And you know, Rashford's coming up and there's a few younger lads, but... In the 90s, I'm talking kind of the mid-90s, so look at that Euro 96 team when you had Shearer and Sheringham. But look at the players who couldn't get into, not even the squad, let alone the team. I mean, Robbie Fowler was in that Euro 96 squad, never had a really good England career, could never budge those two, really. Les Ferdinand, Stan Collymore, Andy Cole, Matt Latissier. It's just endless. Each and every one of them as well would get walk in today's England team. Kevin Phillips later in the decade as well. The striking options in the 1990s were absolutely frightening, I think. And I think if we could turn back the clock and somehow get those guys in here, we'd win the bloody World Cup next year because I think some of those strikers never really got enough chances for England. Ian Wright, of course, I didn't mention there as well. So, yeah, for me, I want more of the England strikers from the 90s in 2018. How does that sound, guys?
1: Stanley Victor
0: for me. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was going to say exactly the same thing. Barely got a kick of a ball in an England shirt. St- Stanley Collimore, unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was at his debut. He was the Umbro Cup. You talk about Terry Venable's dire build-up to Euro 96. That tournament was pretty dire, apart from the Sweden game and Ronaldo's brief performance and Lasso's goal. Actually, okay, more eventful now, but English performances <laughs> were pretty bad, especially that opening game against Japan. But yeah, those that's what I do. I want to see some is of that, those strikers. Is,
1: that, is that got, was the, was this the Umbro Cup, the Juninho goal as well? Yeah, it is, of well, course. Well, We'll get to him.
0: Oh, of course. And he was with that Darren Hansen goal as well, where it hit both posts and went in. I oh, like. yes.
1: Yeah, so that's very satisfying, <laughs> that. Yeah. That always reminds me of... Do you, do you know, and this is going back into the 70s, but uh, Johan Cruyff said once that when he... Uh, well, if if Ajax were winning four nil and he thought the crowd were getting a bit bored, he tried to hit the bar on purpose or the post, <laughs> so it would wake the crowd up and get them excited again, so they wanted to see another goal. <laughs>
0: that's a different. That's a different I mean, level that, of genius that is.
1: Yeah, that that, Anderson, that, that Darren Anderton thing. It's it, it's very satisfying when it hits. It got chunk chunk in. You're like, yeah, that's good. You remember those sorts yeah. of things. I
0: think Les Ferdinand did that. Not quite as dramatic as a shot, but I think it was at Saint James's Park in a great qpr win up there in the mid 90s we were in an all red kit it hit both posts and went in great game I think isn't, there a,
1: isn't there a qpr one where it gets stuck in the stanchion
0: uh i remember the gordon strachan one i'm not sure about the qpr one there's a gordon strachan one that used to be on the grandstand boom music <laughs> <laughs> um final wishes then um Sid, you alluded to something that was in the realms of what you were talking about so what is your final christmas wish
2: well, this is going to be a controversial one for Joel, so he might he might want to cover his ears or go and put, you know, bittersweet symphony back on. <laughs> um, I'm, I wish that Sir Bobby Robson was still Newcastle manager hmm. because I watched the other day, I, I don't know how I found it, I came across it, I watched a documentary from, I think it was 2002, where Gary Lineker spent a day with Bobby Robson at Newcastle and it was—it nearly brought a tear to my eye. I know how I got it actually, because before that, I watched 2007, Bobby Robson getting Sports Personality of the Year Lifetime yeah, yeah. Achievement Award, and I defy anyone, anyone, to watch that and not get a lump <laughs> in your throat because it is incredible—the ovation he gets, the humility the man shows, the dignity—and for me, if we take England aside, because obviously Italian 90 was amazing. But when Bobby Robson came back to Newcastle, he restored some much-needed dignity to that club. Uh, he brought stability. Um, he, they won 8-0 on his debut against Sheffield Wednesday. Alan Shearer got 5, which I know is all painful listening for Joel. But <laughs> I mean, the, you look you look at where Newcastle have been since they sacked Robson. He should never have been sacked. It was a disgraceful decision, really, to replace him with Graham Soonis as well was equally appalling. Um he, he was just such a class human being, a wonderful human being and uh, a wonderful character, such a warm heart. And the documentary showed him sort of en- engaging with his players. And yes, he was, you know, I, sometimes I wonder if he played upon his sort of bumbling image, getting names wrong and all that kind of thing. But the respect they had for him and the love he had for the club, I thought it was wonderful. And if he was still around now as a manager in a Premier League, I would love it. Mm, you, so you're turning into Keegan, then. yeah. It turned into they, a yeah. It was months. deliberate. It was
1: deliberate. son. <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing with uh, you know as a as a fan of a of a rival side is that Robson, you know, we was probably the only Newcastle manager that I can remember that we didn't hate. You know, Keegan was just seen as being an overbearing, arrogant, you know, spotlight hog. I think we didn't mind this because he played for us, but you know, you look down some of that list of managers that they had down the years. Pardieu and that—it's quite a lot of people that we quite enjoyed hating. But Bobby Robson, I think you know, I, I think you'd struggle to find somebody that hated him in Sunderland. To be honest with you, I think it, it's that sort of the legacy, everything that he brought to the game, the fact that uh, you know that, that some of the teams he managed—you you, know—you don't you don't go, you don't manage Barcelona by accident you know it's just remarkable you know it's it's one of them just another wonderful character sadly missed from our game I think mm.
0: you look at his Newcastle record as well going there they were fourth third and fifth I mean it's the kill for that and it's not that long ago I know you know we, we're the time thing always makes us think it was yesterday, even the 90s, but it wasn't that long ago. And clearly, Newcastle haven't been in a better state since. And I think you're right there, Sid, getting rid of him way too early after a poor start to, to the last season he was in charge was kind of the, the beginning of what Newcastle had been through over the last sort of two decades. But yeah, I, I mean, I echo the sentiments of both of you. I mean, he he's kind of Uncle Bobby isn't he? he's what we I came into football he was England manager he was this authority figure I didn't even know about all the accusations he had as well uh, that was later in life that I learned that uh, he had going into the uh, England Italian 90 and the stuff he suffered somewhat in the 80s but yeah I mean like you say Barcelona Porto PSV Sporting Lisbon he was, he was an excellent manager an excellent man and the bumbling thing just added to his character and yeah sadly missed um, kind of wish we ended on that one but I think we're going to end on a certain Brazilian with Joe so I'll do my final uh, wish which is quite niche because it's a world that I work in now um, and it's just something I was quite obsessed with as a kid uh, within the football industry and and that's magazines and I just wish there were better football magazines for adults out now than there is i mean, I know it's a kind of dying art form because of the internet and, and uh, social media but i'm talking titles like total football goal and 90 minutes uh, 90 minutes especially one of my my favorite reads uh, we talked in detail about that with paul hawksby who launched it who now of TalkSport sport fame in one of our previous pods go back into the the archive and listen to it as they say just there was much more to read for me I mean I'm all for tablets and living in 2018 because I don't want to sound like three wise men having a moan about the good old days but <laughs> the quality the mag- having a physical magazine and the quality of the product in it not only just from a uh, sort of factual base for him, but the humor especially in these the total football 90 minutes 90 minutes sprang to mind particularly because I was thinking of Christmas as well every Christmas they should do this calendar that was illustrated um, I used to always have it and some of the jokes probably went over my head because I was probably slightly young in a couple of years that i was buying it but it did things like, like put them into soap characters or possibly um Pop stars as well. I kind of remember an E17 picture that they had uh, Julian Dix part of it with Tony Mortimer and Brian Harvey next to him, and there was another one Bobby Robson as part of East Denders. I think he was sitting next to Pat Butcher and things like that. It was just that kind of sort of humour that you don't see in today's game because you might upset someone. Um, and footballers did things for magazines that they wouldn't want to do now. Going back again to what we were saying about being the brand and what agents let them do and being the sort of conveyor belt of footballers. So yeah, I just wish football magazines were. For adults, because for kids they're brilliant. Go and buy a Kick magazine for your kids for Christmas. But for an for an adult, four four two does a great job in what it does. But it really stands on its own. It's got like the WWE it hasn't really got any competition anymore. Um, and world soccer is very much a niche for your proper sort of you know proper proper as in who likes to do the world of football. This was more kind of every day what we think about what we talk about down the pub kind of things and they have the same kind of humor these two magazines so, so yeah and then when there were others you know when saturday comes it's still knocking around and it's not quite as good as it used to be um and there was a few magazines that came and went as well in that decade but yeah for me uh, i don't know about you guys and, and your magazine traits of that decade but 90 minutes total football bring them back
1: 442 is always the one for me um i thought it was a cracking magazine but it's like you said you know it's it's because everything's so fast moving now. Mm, of course, uh, for, for those sort of monthly big-read magazines, is that things can move on so cu- so quickly in that world. And it's kind of, 442, I think they sort of tagged themselves as the grown-up football magazine originally. I think the first issue had Venable's it on the did, cover. Yeah. Actually, a really cool black and white picture of Terry Venable's, and a sort of five or six-page interview that was sort of. You know, I think we were just coming out of that era where, you know, you were if you were a football fan, you were kinda one step above a troglodyte, really. And 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 then it was like obviously Nick Hornby and Fever Pitch changed all that, and then people realised that there was a market there. But didn't did you post the cover of the first ever Goal the other day? Or somebody did because it I wasn't said, the first
0: issue. It was uh, one of the first issues, yeah. Because I recent... said why
1: is why is Frank Skinner got his shirt on? Back? <laughs> yeah, I
0: don't know why, but yeah, because they've recently Four Four Two itself have uh, relaunched Goal as a kids mag, which um, I'm not really fond of, obviously, because more competition. There's plenty of us already in the market.
1: But people keep nicking your ideas, Ash. Basically, yeah. <laughs> and have
2: more
0: money to do them than I do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sid, how about you? What were your reading pleasures of the 90s? Uh,
2: 442 World Soccer. You've named all of them. And, you know, to be honest, I haven't bought one in years, yeah. which yeah. shows, you know, not, and you know, I love reading about football. There are some super talented writers out there. You know, Matthew Christ, who's been on here mm. plenty of times. I can read Matthew Christ all day long. And, and, you know, really many other good ones, but they're they're not in print, really. And they're certainly not in a publication which makes me want to part with 395 or, you know, to see what else is in there. It's a a real sad demise for me, um, symbolic of where we are, you know, as a society with regards to printed publications. Yeah, it's a big loss. Mm -hmm. I won't say any more on it because I know Joel's itching to finish on a high, isn't he? He is.
0: The only (laughs) thing I will say is, Check out Mundial magazine. That's a great read. Very good,
2: yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah, I would. I will say that. The production values of Mundial, the illustration. Yeah, very, very, very good.
0: Props there, guys. He's been on the podcast before. Great magazine. Go on then, finish us, Joe. We couldn't do a podcast without mentioning a certain Brazilian. I'm sure you're going to finish us off
1: with. Yeah, I want Janine your back. <laughs> <laughs> Simple uh, as. Well, we've never... <laughs> I mean, look, I talked earlier on about moving to the Riverside and how exciting it was. But really, Janino's siding for the club was such a validation of everything that was going on that Steve Gibson had tried to do, that Brian Robson was trying to do with the club. The fact that we beat Arsenal to the punch by actually sending Brian Robson and Keith Lamb out to Brazil to go and meet him. And the sort of player Janino was because he took the fact that we'd gone out to meet him as in Borough uh that Robson and Keith Lamb had gone out to meet him in Brazil he took that as a vitally important thing and I think at that time we were really such a family club but it was just an absolute justification of what we were doing I was have I mentioned about when he first came and they they did the reveal which very rarely happens but they did a reveal on a Tuesday morning in the stadium they opened the stadium Mm. up and there yeah, must like, have been
0: 5,000 Samba girls there and stuff didn't they? Samba
1: girls there bands you know people hitting drums uh, we all got given form fingers I mean I was in sixth form college and I, we just went oh, they're doing this Janino thing let's walk down so we were only like a 10 minute walk from the stadium let's go down so we went down and watched Janino get unveiled in his kit and even then you can't believe it because this is the guy who scored the free kick against England mm. in the cup and, and, and you know Arsenal are after him and Roma are after him and and, and, and here he is at Middlesbrough and the heart of him, I mean, in his first game, I think within about 10 minutes we played Leeds United at home, Janino plays a ball to Jan Agafjordov, who then just didn't get it. It's just at an impossible angle that nobody else in the stadium saw it. And that that's the thing that sticks out in my mind. Like how could he possibly even see that ball? How could he see where Fiotov was? And then Jan Fyotov still had a lot to do to dink it over uh, John Lukic, who was coming out it's a one all draw, which is also how his career ended later on. <laughs> his first Borough spell ended ended with us later on. But um even now, you know, I was I was uh, DJing and, and uh, Mike McGrother was being the MC at Middlesbrough when he when he came back for the final time, I think he brought his team over and we played them we played his Brazilian team in a friendly and just just outstanding, just heart, desire, love and skill. But I think even without the skill level that he had, he still would have been the most popular player that we've ever seen there just because of his heart and his love and, and his real deep love for the club. You know, we had people like Emerson who was going around causing trouble. Ravinelli was mourning all the time when he wasn't in William Hills on uh, Corporation Road. You know, and Janinho was just this clean living, skillful, Absolutely would run and run and run and bleed for the team. Totally uh, fantastic. And then the fact that he came back... I mean, he said winning the League Cup with us was more important than winning the, the World Cup with Brazil.
2: I mean... Come on! <laughs> no
1: wonder
0: you're Um Yeah, that's finished. Talk. I mean, I've mentioned many times on this how I although he did play for QPR, he's obviously a miserable legend. I love Janino. Um, I've got a little figure of him. that's just to the left of me. Um, I met him this year, which was one of my highlights of 2017 oh, yeah, yeah. at the Soccer Sixes event. I mean, Sid, are you the same as a neutral? Did you appreciate Janino as well?
2: I did. I also met him at the Soccer Sixes event this summer, and I. Met I, him 20 uh, years I... Ago. <laughs> I don't need to read this. I met him 20 years ago outside the Purple Onion in
1: Middlesbrough, and we had leg kickups with him. That's and it's bad. When right, fair enough. After, we just come off a nil-nil with Wimbledon, and I said, I said, oh, you know, I remember entirely. I said, Wimbledon not a good football side. He went. I didn't want to play Wimbledon and started laughing <laughs> and I just read like, I didn't come to England to play Wimbledon. I was just like, that's just what a wonderful thing to say and then like I, I had my mate's son with me and he sort of got his picture taken with Jordan and signed some autographs and that I was just like, there you go, lovely, that's what you want. Wow. Ever the professional, smiling, working hard and just utterly skillful and wasn't afraid. Obviously, there's the, the famous Philip Albert picture where he's sort of yes. giving him a, wagging his finger at him mm. which is just a hilarious picture but just wonderful and just bizarrely just bled Middlesbrough. It's, so, it's such a peculiar story that it, that it ever happened. But obviously Robson had his eye on him. And the fact is, they, they put the personal touch on it. And for a player like him and for the character of the lad he is, it meant an awful lot. And it meant more than Arsenal or Roma or whoever else was apparently in for him. Was this... like he's not doing it and just thinking, "Oh, he time for us because we're Arsenal, because we're Roma." No, he came to Borough because he wanted the personal touch, and and that says a lot about him as a character uh, to me. And just you know, when he came back the second and third time, it, you know, he, he had lost a bit, but he was it was still Janino, and everybody just willing him to do well. You know, it's just it's just the best the best player I'll ever see. I think we were spoiled. I think we were really, really, really spoilt with Janino at Middlesbrough. Um, I don't know about you, Sid,
0: but I wish there was a player like that. I can't even put... A, I mean, we've had some great players and some great love for players at QPR, but the love that you can hear in Joel's voice. Do you ever have that for West Ham players? Is there somebody?
2: Uh, probably only TC. Yeah. Yeah, Tony, Tony Cotty. When Tony Cotty came back... Um, he saved us from relegation I think it was 94 95 it he was he was my hero in the late 80s you know I think I had a tear in my eye when he went to Everton uh, when he came back, it was just a, it was a wonderful, wonderful moment. and He scored lots of goals. And then I remember being equally heartbroken when Red Hat decided to get rid of him. And then two years later, he was the top English scorer in the Premier League with Leicester City. But, um, yeah, I met I met TC at a book signing in Tesco's in Leytonstone about four Biscuit years ago. This gets more glamorous. Yeah, yeah. I, I met him in there and he was a cracking bloke. Um, so nice. So genuine and uh, they say don't meet your heroes, but uh, that was one occasion where it paid off because he was a he was a wonderful fella.
0: I think the closest maybe Kevin Gallon Obviously, he didn't have the skill of Janino uh, and the and the higher profile, but he's somebody who kept coming back to the club. Loved the club. I'm now lucky enough to be kind of friends with him because he helped do the forward for my uh, QPR book as well. And I met him in some dingy pub in Hemel Hempstead to interview him about it, and we become kind of <laughs> kind of, another glamorous story, kind of kind of friends. So I go, I guess he would be the closest, but yeah, a great player who could have been greater if it weren't for for an injury early in his career. Um, well, See, think... there's
2: there's a problem, Ash, isn't it? Really, dingy pub in Hempstead, Tesco's in Leighton Stone you, you, you won't see um, you won't see Gabriel Jesus hanging out in those sort of gaffes exactly will
0: you? <laughs> and there's our final wish for the 90s on this Christmas special I really, which I really enjoyed I don't think any of our wishes boys are probably going to come true anytime soon but it was worth a go and it's worth reminiscing as always on 90s football before we go and I think we've run extra long on this special Christmas episode uh, that's just find out where we can get involved with you guys on the social network joel where are you on twitter and where else
1: everywhere twitter and instagram it's joel baby herc j-o-e-l-b-a-b-y-h-e-r-c and if you want to come over and say hello that would be lovely it's still pictures of the cat and me mourning (laughs) about middlesbrough Uh, why would we want it any other way i think over the next sort of 10 days it'll just be extremely drunken but uh you know come over and say hello we'll see what happens
0: and your ever-growing Twitter handle, Mr. Lambert, that just blew up this week is? Uh,
2: so the account is called Proper Football. Great name. And Great name. the Twitter handle is at Sid underscore Lambert. Yeah, for all sorts of nonsense, uh, bad jokes, some good jokes, um, uh, Bross references, <laughs> Thomas Gravison with hair. Uh,
0: Nigel Jepsen retweets.
2: <laughs> yeah, Nigel Jepsen retweets. Uh, and a like by Chris Waddle yesterday. So oh, it's all amazing. happening over there.
0: We're enjoying it. No, we're enjoying it too. And you'll enjoy Sid's book as well. Like I said, get it if you still can for Christmas. So just Merry Christmas, boys. I want to say that personally from me. Have a good Christmas for you too. And Merry Christmas to everyone who's listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you Let us know your own Christmas wishes from the 90s. Hit us up on Twitter at AK90s. Have a great Christmas. We'll see you in 2018. And as always, don't forget to keep it 90s.